Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I am your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Cabillas. Today's episode focuses on the link between autism and depression, more specifically how people with autism experience depression. In terms of statistics, a meta-analysis by researchers Chloe Hudson, Layla Hall, and Kate Harkness determined that people with autism were four times more likely to experience depression than their neurotypical peers. 40% of autistic adults and 8% of autistic children have experience with depression. Though there are many articles that talk about the link between autism and depression, the triggers that cause people with autism to experience depression and treatments for it, Nick Dubin's book, The Autism Spectrum and Depression, goes into greater detail about why people with autism experience depression. Dubin was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome in 2004 and has a background in psychology. He has written multiple books about autism and mental health, which includes anxiety, depression, and bullying. He has also written books and articles about legal reform for people in the autism community. Now, if you tuned in last week, or maybe you didn't, um, we did do an episode about autism and anxiety and heavily referenced Dubin's book, Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety. So if you're interested to learn more, check that out. We will be doing a high-level summary of key points Dubin brings up in his book about autism and depression with the hope that our audience will be motivated to buy his book. Additionally, Brett and I will talk about our experiences with depression based on Dubin's points, how we deal with depression and autism in our personal lives, our workplace, and supporting depressed students with autism. We'll close the episode by talking about book recommendations for autism and depression, in addition to Nick Dubin's book on autism and depression. Okay, so let's go into what is depression. All right, so experiences of depression can include... Uh, great sadness, grief, overall blues and hopelessness, feeling numb both physically and emotionally, can experience physical pain and indigestion, insomnia or excessive fatigue, struggles to understand and express emotions, struggles to engage in daily living tasks such as cooking, cleaning, personal hygiene, lack of appetite, internal shame and victim mindset, anger towards yourself or taking anger out on other people as a way not to feel sad, an overanalysis about yourself or the world around you, learned helplessness when life stresses impinge on one's sense of competence and the effects of the locus of control, which is the extent to which people feel control over a situation. Yeah, and I'll add to that. I have a friend who has depression, and he described his experience with depression as always having a cold. So mm. if you think about having a cold, um, you know, minus the sniffling and sneezing. Right. He just said the amount of low energy and uh, not necessarily like sadness. Although I do think like I'll speak from personal experience. Like when I get sick, sometimes I get really emotional and weepy. Mm. Um, but for him, it's more like he feels like it's really hard to engage in the world because he doesn't feel like he has the energy yeah. to. And yeah. if you think about it, like, let's say that you have a pretty serious cold and your mm -hmm. friends are like, oh, let's go out downtown and, and get food. Yeah. He said, if you're sick, you just don't have the energy. 
your you know your brain's cloudy you're, right. uh, you're quiet because all you want to do is lay in bed and sleep so so he used that metaphor to mm-hmm. talk about what it was like to experience depression and and I thought that that was a really powerful metaphor yeah and it's one of those things where he said he does make an effort to engage yeah. um but for him the struggle of engaging it really does feel like he struggles with sickness yeah. where he can only he can only engage for a certain amount of time before mm-hmm. he just gets tapped out easily and then he has mm-hmm. to go lie down and you know care for himself so yeah i liken I, it to like um a cloudy day right yes so yeah it, it could be sunny outside and everybody around you is happy and you know full of energy and you just feel cold you know like there's always a cloud either mentally in your mind or you know physically you just feel like low energy and it's in and it's a shroud that just encompasses you right so yeah. this this cloud kind of just hovers over you and it's and you can't necessarily see a way out of it right i mean you just you're just encompassed in the moment of this this cloudy kind of negative perception of yourself or others or the world around you yeah so I think it's important to talk about that because a lot of people assume depression is just about being sad, but there's right. like a, a physical fatigue mm-hmm. that comes with being depressed. Now, granted, that's not how everybody experiences depression, that's true. Um, but I, I do think it's it's important to recognize that depression is a very multifaceted experience. And, mm-hmm. you know, as as we talked about, there's this physical fatigue Mm -hmm. Um, that comes with, you know, feeling low in addition to maybe, you know, some sadness. Yeah. So let's talk about the links between autism and depression. Autistic people with higher IQs tend to evaluate their social competence. Those who feel less socially competent are more likely to develop depressive symptoms. And I would also say that the same could be said for developing anxiety. Major life transitions, especially when that transition involves adult independence, can have a huge impact on depression. This is because adults around the person with autism provide structure and predictability, whereas the adult with autism has to provide their own structure. And that can create a lot of vulnerability because that requires adaptation, coping with change, shedding a part of one's identity and forming a new one and loosening dependent ties with parents. And I will tell you, like, whether you're neurotypical or neurodiverse, um, moving out, even if you live close to your parents, just the act of moving out and being on your own is deal. hard, Yeah, you know? And, and there's this, uh, as much as you want to be on your own, there's this uh, grief of you mm. feel like you're separated from your family in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I will, you know, also say as a 32 year old adult, like if I go on a vacation with my parents, especially like my mom, if we're doing a mother daughter trip, mm-hmm. sometimes I get sad after the trip ends because even though they're my family and I love them, you know, they're not my my nuclear or I guess right. they're not my core family right now because I have right. a husband who I mm-hmm. live with and, you know, we're planning on having kids. And so it's it's hard sometimes to you know have these people that you've lived with for right. you know 18 years and then you know on and off in your adulthood 
And then when you go on a vacation with them, it's like, okay, it's time to part ways. And so there's this weird feeling of like, I will always be connected to them. But at the same time, there's always going to be a little bit of separation. And so, uh, you know, so I think for somebody with autism who is really used to that, you know, parents are always there for you and there's a familiar home and a familiar bedroom like that. That's really hard. And even if we want it, sometimes that change uh, is just so unconsciously challenging for us. Right. And and it's something that not everybody um, deliberately prepares for. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. You know, if we think about, you know, kids going off to college and we think about, you know, oh, college is one of the most exciting times of your life, which in, right. in many ways is true. But in other ways, it is very challenging because mm-hmm. that it's it's the first step in tr- the transition to adulthood. Mm-hmm. And there are so many challenges that come with adult independence and college right. that it does challenge your mental health. It, it can increase the likelihood of anxiety and depression. And maybe that shocks people because we think about, you know, how fun it is and how teenagers want to be on their own. And, and I think we can rationally think, you know, oh, this is what I want. But then when we're actually there, we realize Mm -hmm. it's a lot harder than we think it is. Absolutely. Um, so other examples of depression are social alienation, bullying, and discrimination, adversity experienced when interacting uh, social and professional norms that are not meant to set a person with autism up for success, cynicism towards living in a world not made for neurodiverse people, or cynicism towards the ills and absurdities that exist in the world. People with autism see the world differently, making them feel ahead of their time and sometimes holier than thou, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And then there's empathetic attunement. So there's this stereotype that people with autism are incapable of empathy. But the truth is, we are very emotional creatures. We are very much capable of empathy. The reason it comes off as if we're not empathetic is because we get so overstimulated by the empathy that we feel for others or the hypersensitivity of what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of shut down as a way to sort of manage that overwhelm. And it's very similar, like a very, very mild level of a shutdown. So it's like a functional shutdown where, you know, you're engaging in the world, but it's very uh, guarded. Mm. Um, Anyway, so empathic, empathetic attunement is feeling hyper attuned to other people's suffering, mistreatment, misfortune, and social inequities. And a big part of that is because people with autism have personal experience with being marginalized. Mm-hmm. And in addition to, you know, that hyper attunement with other people, you know, there are some people with autism that feel that hyper attunement for animals, plants, the environment. And so, right. you know, right, right. yeah, so it can be a lot of different things. Um, Another issue is struggling to identify and express emotions, especially if there is a feeling of being chronically misunderstood. Then there's the inability to meet developmental milestones, which could be academic, developmental, social, emotional, etc., because autism and or depression makes those demands even harder. And I think that that's important to consider with parents. Um, 
I think every parent who's had uh, an autistic child diagnosed early in life, you know, there's that attachment to meeting or exceeding milestones because it's that fear that autism is going to be so disabling that mm. the trajectory of the future is not so clear. Right. And there's the fear of like, you know, is my child suffering because of those things? And I do think, you know, as somebody living with autism, I think it's very traumatizing for people to, you know, with good intention, put a lot of pressure on a child with autism and be like, all right, well, you need to walk. And if you can't walk, what's wrong with you? Right. And, and I do think that over time, you know, parents begin to accept the child that they have mm -hmm. and let go of that attachment. But in the beginning, you know, I think parents underestimate how those, those expectations, which can sometimes come off as, you know, overachievement or perfectionism for a person right. with autism, that can be very traumatizing and it can create a lot of shame for a person with autism right. because they don't feel like they're good enough just the way they are. Exactly. They have to, you know, they always have to meet the standard of, of mm -hmm. somebody else who doesn't truly understand what it means to live with that experience. Right. And so I, and I oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to add that um, as a parent, though, what we're, what we're confronted with or what we're presented as we take our child to the pediatrician is this chart. They have this chart of milestones. And, um, you know, this is the typical moment when your child should speak, walk, be potty trained, you know, all of these different milestones, right? Height, weight, all of these things. And we're taught that this is, this is the scientific norm. And when your child deviates from that norm, right, then the message is, well, something's wrong. And then how can we address this? And, oh, this is an issue. And, oh, you need to get help with this. And, and so on, on the one hand, it's good information, right? But the other, on the other hand, like you said, is it leads parents, I think, down the road of, oh, I have to fix this. Or I have to, I have to do this in some way, which can have its own right, impact on the child over time. Yeah. And, you know, there are some people with autism uh, that are always going to be nonverbal. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that they can't communicate. Right. You know, there there are ways that we adapt to develop those skills mm -hmm. to connect, mm -hmm. to be able to engage in the world, to be productive in society. And sometimes we problem solve it on our own. And sometimes our parents play a role in helping us out. And I think what I what I've learned when I read the autobiographies of people with autism or their parents talking about their young adult child with autism is that when you let go of that attachment to milestones, you start to realize a different kind of potential in your child. Yeah. Or what some parents have realized is, you know, maybe that child will get there, mm -hmm. but maybe they're not going to get there, you know, right in that moment. Right. Uh, you know, where it's scientifically expected. So, you know, to right. give an example, let's let's talk about, uh, you know, you turn 16, you get a car, you start driving, you know, granted, mm -hmm. you, you get a car if that is uh, financially sure. feasible exactly. for your family. Exactly. But, you know, the idea is you turn 15, 
you start to learn how to drive. And then by mm -hmm. 16, you should be able to drive on your own. Right. I've had neurotypical students with a variety of mental health struggles who they don't learn how to drive until they're in their 20s. Right. Or some people like I have a friend who has so much anxiety with driving that he just won't do it. Mm -hmm. And he's sure. learned to, sure. you know, reach out to other people to pick him up if we're going to hang out, which, right, you know, right. I and other friends are totally okay with. And, mm -hmm. you know, and then learning about how to do public transportation, you know, the ability right, to right. get there without having mm -hmm. to be actively engaged. Yeah, and there then are the other, other ways, yeah. Right. And then the other piece, like, say, for example, with uh, college and adult independence, you know, there are some people who don't choose to go to college or mm -hmm. they go to college later in life um, when it comes to, you know, moving out of the house. Like my belief is if it takes 10 years from age, say, for example, you know, 22 to 32 for a young adult to figure out how to be independent, give them that time, right. you know, give them baby steps. I think that when we get rigid about by this age, Right. You should be like this. That's where so many mental health struggles come up. And it's not even just Absolutely. for the child with autism. Think about how much anxiety and depression a parent carries because they're mm -hmm. anxious about, oh, well, you know, we got this timeline and we got to get them here. And mm -hmm. then if and then if there's this failure that the child doesn't reach that milestone, then the parent gets to a place of depression and burnout. But what happens? to mental health on both ends of the spectrum, if we just be in the moment and just say, we're always going to grow into whatever we're capable of. Right. And we're going to grow in what is natural for our capability. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be pressured. We don't need to be, you know, um, micromanaged to get there. Just right. trust that we're going to get there and we're going to get there in a way that might not look like the image that a parent so desperately holds in their mind. Right. And I, I think the other thing is, you know, the theme of our podcast is, you know, building up that independence to live a healthy, active, personal lifestyle, whatever that means for that person on the spectrum. But that changes over time and with, per with each person, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I love how you put it that, you know, it's going to be, it's, it's a different journey for everybody. Oh, right? definitely. And different, if it's a different timeline for everybody and, well, and you, you will get there. Yeah. And, and I'm also thinking, you know, when we talk about our role as teachers, you mm -hmm. know, when, when anxiety and depression start showing up for students, you know, even neurotypical right. students, and that can yep. be, yep. you know, uh, biology, you know, puberty, it mm -hmm. can be, uh, you know, a traumatic experience. COVID, you know, the, the struggle right. of, right. oh, now I'm in high school and there's this expectation, you know, mm -hmm. mental health plays such a huge role in a person's ability to meet milestones. And, you Absolutely. know, going back to autism, like sometimes people with autism just struggle to meet milestones because when you have a nervous system that is constantly overstimulated, mm -hmm. when you live in a world that just doesn't make sense to the way that your neurodiverse brain works, it, it does create an inhibitor. Yeah. Um, you know, anxiety and depression absolutely creates an inhibitor. Now, 
Is it important to be concerned? Absolutely. Is it important to have intervention for a better quality of life? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But what we shouldn't do is approach those issues from a place of fear and high expectation. Yes. We need to meet the, you know, we need to meet the person with where they're at Mm -hmm. and really show kindness and hold a safe space Mm -hmm. to understand that, that, the struggle is valid. You yes. know, it's human. Um, just because they have that struggle doesn't mean that they're less of a person or less capable of meeting milestones. Mm-hmm. But what it does do is it is it prevents this predictable trajectory. So when we support people that are struggling, we need to let go of what that trajectory looks like. Yes. And, Good you know, yeah. And, and if, if anxiety or depression, you know, does play a role in in academic struggling, my attitude as a teacher is I'd say, you know, mental health comes first. Yeah. Let let's put aside I don't care what grade you get. I mean, I care that you pass well, my class, yeah, yeah. but right. but you know, I don't care if the student gets a C or D. I care that I am holding space for their mental health. I'm having a conversation with them to say, your mental health is more important than my expectation of you getting this project done. And let's figure out a strategy where we can prioritize mental health and Mm -hmm. make sure that you pass the class. So, so yeah, like, am I, am I holding my students accountable to make sure that they're moving forward in their education so they don't have to fail a class or repeat it? Absolutely. But in doing so, I'm also not holding them to an expectation to say, oh, well, your depression doesn't matter. You should be putting more time into your studies. You right. should get an A. That's right. not what's on the table. And ultimately, how they overcome depression or how they start to understand themselves when it comes to their mental health is going to have a significantly bigger impact mm-hmm. on shaping who they are right. than whatever project they're going to get or whatever grade they get. Yeah, absolutely true. So anyway, moving forward with the list, um, you know, other triggers of depression for people with autism are the interpersonal, professional, or cultural shames about being autistic, which can be kind of self-directed or it can mm-hmm. be, you know, things other people say or do because of right. stigma or ignorance around autism. Um, exactly. And I and I've had people use the word benevolent ableism mm. uh, as another piece of it, which to me is just ignorance. Right. Um, also, being surrounded by people that are not able to adequately support those needs, being able to ask for accommodations is one thing, which is very brave and vulnerable. But the other piece of it is like some people want to help, but they have no idea how to help, or they help yeah. in a way that does more harm than good. And that can create a lot of mistrust. And then they're struggling with common autism struggles without getting an autism diagnosis to contextualize those struggles. There's also autistic burnout, having to struggle to live in a world not built for neurodiverse people without a sense of relief. And so, you know, it's what we were talking about earlier. When you put that expectation of milestones, Mm -hmm. you know, that's essentially, we want you to live in a way that is familiar and comfortable for the neurotypical comprehension of right. human existence. Exactly. And always having to meet a bar 
that is just never going to be met. That's what it often feels like because, mm-hmm. it, you know, again, speaking from personal experience, like sometimes it just feels like neurotypical n- people nitpick all neurodiverse differences. And and then there's this expectation of, well, if life's going to be easier, you're going to have to fix those things. And yeah. that's exhausting. Yeah, it's I'm also sure it exhausting, you know, like I'm very open about my autism. I'm passionate about advocacy. And yet it is exhausting mm-hmm. to always try to educate people about what autism is, what neurodiversity is, mm-hmm. what are my strengths and struggles, and to do it all the time. And especially if you, you know, for me, I, I worked at a school and I established that foundation. And then uh, I had to get a new job because mm-hmm. uh, I was on a sabbatical contract. And so then to have to do that all over over again, again. it was just like, it was so taxing on my mental health. Mm. And it, and it frustrated me because being in education now, granted, I don't think teachers should have the pressure of like, Oh, you got to be an expert on race. You got to be an expert on LGBTQ plus identity. You got to be an expert on disability. That's just impossible. But on the other hand, because we are in a career where we are having to support a very diverse range of kids, you'd think teachers would have some sort of investment in learning those things, but not a lot of people do. And while I can understand the humanness of that, it's also exhausting for me. Mm -hmm. Why can't you do the effort to understand me when I have to do the effort you know, to understand you. It's just, it's not, it's not equal and it's not equitable at the end of the day. Right. So when that burnout happens, this increases the risk of a person with autism giving up on life, which Mm. can be, you know, life responsibilities and just generally living at all. And then there's not being able to reach a standard of perfection that the person with autism puts on themselves. We're very black and white thinkers. We yes. are catastrophizers. Um, we are very detail-oriented thinkers. We really like structure, routine, and predictability. And all of those things feed perfectionism. Mm-hmm. So people with autism are very adept at noticing their mistakes and having a great fear of failure. And and we catastrophize those little mistakes. And And we think, you know, we go to this place where it gets overblown. And so we expect that we got to do it perfectly. Um, you know, one example for me, um, I struggle a lot with social perfectionism. And, and when I make a social mistake, I get so terrified that that mistake is going to do harm to others. And mm. more often than not, it doesn't, but it's right. really hard to break out of that mindset that, you know, something bad's going to happen. Um, and then perfectionism is also a way to cover up feelings of inferiority. Um, I would say for me as an artist, um, you know, being a very skilled artist had an impact on being treated with respect, even though I was Mm -hmm. bullied for being neurodiverse and being nerdy and socially awkward. And so I used art as a as a way to control how people treated me and mm-hmm. and then as i got older i also used uh academic credentials especially credentials yeah. related to social emotional intelligence and that was absolutely that way of um trying to cover up feeling inferior 
and covering up, you know, I have struggles as an autistic person. And Mm -hmm. because I struggle, I'm not going to be treated with the respect and dignity that I know I deserve. And I, you know, I know from having talked to other people, like athletics is another example of that. Um, Mm -hmm. I met a woman who uh, has a daughter with autism that was diagnosed later in life. And she loved basketball and she was very good at it. And, you know, from what the mom said, she would make some shots and, you know, everybody would be like, oh, you did such a great job. So, so the neurotypical people around this person were saying, you know, as a whole, you did a really good job. But the person with autism was hung up on that one shot that they didn't get correctly. And that one shot became this, this catastrophizing experience. And, Mm. and so then the daughter started freaking out and started crying and, Mm. and, uh, and got really, really hard on herself. And the mom, you know, and granted at the time, um, the mom didn't have the autism diagnosis for contextualization, but the mom was so confused about why her daughter was so hard on herself when she played very well and the team won. But I think that that's why it's really important to understand how perfectionism triggers depression and anxiety. Because again, Mm -hmm. neurotypical people, generally speaking in comparison to a person with autism, neurotypical people are really good at seeing the whole picture. Yeah, there are some things that are not perfect, but as a whole, what does it look like? But people with autism are so detail oriented and and Mm -hmm. and we get so hard on ourselves for the one thing, but we're not seeing the big picture of, okay, I screwed up, but as a whole, I'm doing pretty okay. And so when you when you focus on that detail that's not going perfectly and you catastrophize about that detail being, you know, a, a negative reflection of yourself or I let my team down because I didn't do this shot well, that breeds anxiety and depression. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is, you know, when you have a strong sense of responsibility, integrity and following the rules, if you feel like you've broken that rule, then it creates a lot of sadness. I know for me in particular, uh, I'm very passionate about equity and inclusion. And I put Mm -hmm. a lot of effort into doing research on, you know, uh, what it means to interact with a person of color or interacting with a person that's a part of the LGBTQ plus community. And I get scared that I'm going to make a mistake that's going to hurt somebody. And to me, that that fear and that sadness that I hurt somebody is a sense of responsibility and integrity and following the rules. And yeah. so uh, sometimes responsibility, integrity, and following the rules is sort of a universal human thing. And sometimes it mm-hmm. comes from the values that that person carries. Right. And if they're not able to meet those values because of a, you know, honest to goodness human mistake, that creates so much shame and mm. grief and anxiety. Um, so that that can play a very, very big role in mental yeah. health. All right. In our previous episode, we summarized key points in Durbin's book, Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety. One of the things we discussed were the maladaptive schemas or negative core beliefs that drive a person with autism to feel chronic anxiety. We also felt that these same maladaptive schemas could be applied to depression. 
So I thought it was really interesting how he outlined this. So he has um, five maladaptive schemas, and then he goes into the core belief of each one, which makes it easier for me to understand and to, and to connect with these, right? Because you talked about, you know, maladaptive schemas. What does that really mean? But when you get into the core belief, that makes sense. Okay. So the first one is disconnection and rejection. The core belief here is the world is not a safe place. What does that mean? Abandonment and instability, mistrust, emotional deprivation, social isolation and alienation, and the failure to achieve. The second one is apparent autonomy and performance. The core belief here is I cannot function adequately in this world, leading to dependence and incompetence, feeling of vulnerability and harm and illness, um, embellishment to and self underdeveloped self. Um, impaired limits is the next next one. Core belief here is things are either good or bad, insufficient self-control or low frustration tolerance. Um, another one is self-directedness. The core belief here is that I'm worthless or I'm to worthless. To clarify, it's other directedness. Yeah. What did I say? You said self-directedness. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you for that. Uh, the core belief here is that I am worthless or I'm worthless without the approval for others. Uh, subjugation, needing to give up our feelings to meet the needs of others. And the final one is overvigilance and inhibition. The core belief here is the world is unpredictable. Overcontrol and emotional inhibition, the fear that expressing emotions will lead to trouble. All right, so we also went into greater detail about each schema in our previous episode, so be sure to listen to that. Um, otherwise, please read about these schemas in our show notes or in Durbin's book, which we will link in the show notes for sure. Um, another topic that Dubin discusses in his book about anxiety is cognitive distortions, which we felt was also related to the experience of depression. Cognitive distortion, a type of rigid and narrative thinking pattern, and a logical assumption that you make about a particular situation. And the cognitive distortion that Dubin identifies are all or nothing thinking, right? Evaluate certain characteristics in terms of whether something is all good or all bad also called black and white thinking, which resonates with me, with my son, um, overgeneralization, to take one situation that occurred and conclude falsely that the same situation is bound to happen over and over. Disqual disqualifying the positive, to ignore the positive aspects of a situation and only choose to focus on the negative ones. Fortune telling, assuming that you have the ability to predict the future, the should must trap, unrealistic expectations of yourself, other people, or external circumstances, or perfectionism, and personalization, blaming yourself for a seemingly random event. So can I jump in real Absolutely. quick? So I want to go back to uh, disqualifying the positive, because we have an episode about perseveration. And to mm -hmm. me, perseveration is such a perfect example of disqualifying the positive when you are spiraling and fixating on that negative emotion, whether that's anger, sadness, anxiety, you, you can't uh, engage in um, being able to have positive thinking. And I think a lot of neurotypical support people, they'll be like, oh, you know, let's work on positive thinking. And, you know, what are the positives? Like, let's talk about it. But it's really hard for that person with autism to do that. It's it's sort of like, let's say that you're in a pool, you know, and the neurotypical person is in a is in a calm pool, and they're standing on their feet, and they go, "All right, we're going to learn how to do breaststroke." 
But yeah. the person with autism is in a whirlpool, like let you picture like a flushing toilet. And sure. they're just scrambling to like not get sucked into the drain and they're trying to breathe and they're scrambling to get out. Like they don't care about, you know, the form. Mm -hmm. uh, they care about getting out or right. they're they're in a state of like, I'm scared. Um, and so I think when it comes to getting a person with autism out of those cognitive distortions, I think it's so important to understand perseveration. And most importantly, just the, the neurological process of perseveration, um, because all of these things, like if, if somebody is perseverating and you say, oh, well, you're having a cognitive distortion and let's get out of it, that's not going to work. Yeah. What you need to do is get that person to feel safe, um, you know, make sure that that person is listening, but also have boundaries, you know, have a little bit of structure. I think the most important thing when it comes to perseveration is, is get some sort of body engagement. Mm. Um, you know, how does this feel in your body? Yeah. Um, right now, actually, um, my somatic therapist and I had an agreement that if I'm perseverating and I, and I'm going through that spiral and I am doing all or nothing thinking to set a timer. Um, because if you don't set mm. a timer, like you're just going to be in that perseveration for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. So set a timer for like three to five minutes. So I'm going to just talk and talk and talk and talk. Okay. And then my, my somatic therapist interrupts me and says, how do you feel in your body right now? Mm. Well, I don't know how I feel in my body because I'm living in my head and I'm freaking out. Yeah. And so what I've found that is so important to get a person out of perseveration is get them to be mindful of their body. And and being mindful of the body can be, like I said, that that redirect of mm. how do you feel in your body instead of your head? You know, where is right. their tightness? Another way is, you know, the person can do some squeezing. Uh, mm -hmm. Or you can mm -hmm. say, all right, we're going to go for a walk or go run on the treadmill, go for a bike ride, do right. something to engage the body, give them a little bit of time to do so, and then have them come back and say, okay, we're going to talk, yeah. you know, then it's three to five minutes. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, you know, let's move. Or as you're perseverating, let's do some jumping, something, um, right. This is Something a really to get you great, going. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So this is a really great way to sort of get that person to slowly step out of perseveration because perseveration and fixation is not something you snap out of. Hmm. It's something that is a gradual transition and, and it may take a longer time than you expect. But when you engage the body and you do these activities that uh, somatically engage the parasympathetic nervous system, which helps you to, you know, rest and digest. And then the person with autism starts realizing like, oh, okay, I'm processing this. I'm digesting it. I'm starting to feel safe. Then talk about, okay, so I, I noticed that you talked like this, and this is an example of all or nothing thinking. Right. It is way easier for an autistic person to identify those cognitive distortions when they are calm mm -hmm. than Versus mm -hmm. when you're perseverating. And I think a right. lot of neurotypical caregivers make huge mistakes of trying to get a person to be mindful and reflective about cognitive distortions and 
uh, maladaptive schemas when they're in distress. And that's just not going to work. So something I think to keep in mind. And uh, and again, you know, I think going back to disqualifying the positive, when you feel regulated, way easier to identify positives. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And finally, another cognitive distortion that wasn't mentioned in the book is catastrophizing. This involves believing that you're in a worse situation than you really are or exaggerating your difficulties. Okay. Nicole, do you have any experiences with depression? So I don't experience chronic depression. Uh, I have way more experience with chronic anxiety. Um, I have experienced situational depression twice in my life, uh, once during my junior slash senior year of college and once during the transition from finishing my teaching license program to working as a teacher. So my experience with depression during college had to do with a lot of complicated factors. I thought that art school would be the place where I would find my tribe, but it ended up being a really catty, toxic environment. Now, Mm. I wanna clarify, it wasn't the school as a whole that was catty, toxic. It was more like my department was very catty and toxic. And then there were some friends I had that just, you know, I didn't vibe with very well. Um, And I think that my cynical bias when it comes to art school, there are a lot of narcissists in the art world. And I think that I found that out the hard way being Mm. in art school. And some of it is students and some of it is professors. And, Mm. And that was really hard to deal with because, you know, you, you deal with, cattiness and toxicity in high school and you think you know college is going to be better and art school is going to be better i personally found that art school was worse than Mm. high school in terms of cattiness Uh, i had teachers gossiping about students to other students yeah that's not good as an example and honestly i felt like being in art school was like being in a high school drama tv show it was that level of like cattiness. Mm. And honestly, it made me realize like my high school experience really wasn't as bad as I thought it, wasn't it was. That but, bad, yeah. but it was context, really yeah. hard because I, I was so optimistic that mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. would just get better as they matured into adulthood. But you would think so. You would think no, so. that that doesn't happen. Hmm. Uh, everybody's got problems. Um, right. I also experienced issues with a lot of friends. Uh, which caused my social life to dwindle. I experienced teacher bullying from three different professors, which was very traumatizing. And then uh, I did go to graduate school for art administration right after. And I was like, okay, I'm in grad school. It's going to be better. Then I experienced teacher bullying from my one and only grad professor. Literally, it was just back to back to back of teacher bullying. And and it was, I, I can't even begin to explain the level of trauma I experienced. Now, mm. it was the reason I did become a teacher because I was just so morally upset about the way I was treated. And I wanted to be a teacher so I could, I could do different mm-hmm. for my future students. Um, but yeah, I'm, it was just like, I couldn't believe that teachers would do something like that to me. And, and in my experience growing up, I always felt like teachers were safe. I had fantastic teachers. And when you're autistic and you struggle with connecting with peers, you often feel like teachers are the only people that you can have genuine connections with. Right. So the fact that I was experiencing teacher bullying by, frankly, 
a lot of narcissistic. Um, mm -hmm. That was really hard to wrap my mind around. And it made me feel vulnerable. It made me feel like I couldn't trust people in authority. It made me afraid to go to a job um, because I, I just didn't know how people were going to treat me. And I will also say that with the teacher bullying, none of them knew that I was autistic. Mm. Um, so I wasn't bullied because of that. And they, some of them had bullied other students. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really toxic situation. Um, I was also questioning my future because I didn't like the politics of the fine arts world. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had gotten my degree in painting. Um, I feel like the fine art world is its own Hollywood mm. and I just, didn't like that culture. I didn't want to be part of it. And I was going through some existential stress um, related to my identity, um, specifically in relation to my autism diagnosis. Um, I don't want to go into a ton of detail about right. what that was like, but I would say that there was a lot of dark nights of the soul. There was a mm. lot of spiritual uh, existential things going on. And and that had a very big impact on how I related to my autism diagnosis as an adult compared to um, how I related to it as a kid. And I think it's just one of those things uh, where I felt like the, the dark night of the soul and, and the identity crisis had a lot to do with how people were defining my autism, mm. which ranged from, you know, oh, you're autistic and let me fix you. And, yeah. oh, you know, you've worked really hard, but, you know, you're not perfect and we still need to fix you. And then I mm. had people that were like, wow, you're, you know, you're so socially competent. Maybe you were misdiagnosed. And the whole topic of, hmm, do you think maybe you were misdiagnosed with autism uh, really messed up my mental health? Um, because I had felt like, wow, I had gone through all this therapy and um, and I, you know, went through these struggles and I was bullied and and to realize, like, maybe the diagnosis was wrong was really tough. Um, but what I feel as an adult is, you know, when people say maybe you were misdiagnosed, that is a response to the way that I mask my autism through yeah. my highly yeah. competent social skills. So right. I'm at a point as an autism advocate where I'm not going to allow anybody to determine what my diagnosis means mm -hmm. and what the quality of my life means with my diagnosis. Yeah. And I, to be honest, I don't think people with little to no experience with autism should have any right to come up to a person with autism and say, maybe you were misdiagnosed. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you know, so that that really took a huge toll on my mental health. Um, you know, I was living alone, finishing my program, seeing a therapist um, and moving back to Colorado from the state that I went to art school. All of those things helped me to overcome my depression. I, to be honest, like. When you experience teacher bullying, so the first time it happened, I was like, OK, it only happened once and I'm going to have better right. teachers. But when you have three professors that bully you and you have all of these peers that are catty and toxic 
And, and again, I'm somebody that's very outspoken and advocate and I stand up for myself and I set boundaries and I'm very good at using I statements and all of that. Right. It didn't make a difference because mm. it was the culture of the school. Yeah. And that heavily influenced my depression mm -hmm. because I felt like I was trapped in a place that was bringing me down emotionally. And I, and I was stuck there until I finished my degree. Um, and I was getting to the point, um, I, I, the school that I went to uh, was in the South. And the South, culturally, is so different from Colorado. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard for me to deal with. And, um, and as I was struggling with being in art school, I also just really started struggling with uh, just being in another state. Yeah, when I started sure. college, I was like so excited to get out of Colorado and yeah. I couldn't wait to be on my own. And right, by the new end adventure. of the four years, I just knew Colorado was my home. Mm. And I was just so tired of like putting in the effort of reestablishing my life in another place and just couldn't wait to get back. So mm. when mm. I finally did get back, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much happiness and relief I felt. Um, and so, you know, that's why I say it was situational. Um, I, I really didn't feel like I could overcome my, my depression and my anxiety until I left. And unfortunately, you know, there are times where you just can't leave until something is wrapped up. And when it wraps up, you finally get your freedom and autonomy back, right? Mm, yeah, that's, yeah. Um. So as for the professional transition, so I have talked about in previous episodes that the transition from college student to working professional took a really big toll on my mental health. Mm -hmm. And part of that had to do with a physiological and emotional addiction to the structure of being in school as a student for most of my life. There were also two months in between my student teaching placement ending and my summer job starting. And having that much downtime didn't make me feel great because I, I just, I think for me, it was like, I just missed having structure. And even though I think two months off was good for me to have just a little bit of transition, um, I also felt it's hard to, it's hard to explain this because I think logically I felt ready to transition into the professional working world, but emotionally I didn't want to transition. Mm. And that unconscious fear uh, really took a toll on, on my, my physiological health. So I just mm. remember, you know, I would kill my time by making artwork, but I just felt sad. I mm. felt unmotivated. I felt unwilling to leave my um, apartment mm -hmm. and I also felt like, you know, I'm the type of person that I'm a very positive thinker. And I I guess when it comes to low frustration tolerance, I have low frustration tolerance for being sad, for mm. being angry, for for having fear. And I think for me, I do allow myself to have those feelings. It's not like I bottle it up. Right. But there comes a certain point where like if it's been three days of being sad, I'm like, I'm done feeling this way. And okay. I want to start, uh, you know, just doing things that make me feel better, taking action. And in those two months, I just felt like nothing I, I wanted to do proactively was changing my mood. 
And so it was just, again, it was one of those things where I just had to go through the motions. Mm -hmm. I felt a lot better when I started my summer job as a special education uh, counselor. Mm -hmm. um, that helped a lot. Um, okay. So I don't know. It's it's Is one of those because it things. was a, a something different, something just to kind of snap you out of it. I think so. I mean, I think it would have been really challenging if I started working like right after my student teaching. But right. But I will say this: like you know, as teachers, we get two months off. Um, when you're a kid, you love having summers off because all your oh, friends have summers off. Oh yeah. It's really hard when you have time off and everybody else is working. Mm. And you just sit there and you're like trying to come up with ideas to entertain yourself. Right. And then it just gets to the point where like, you know, I describe it as it's work without stakes. And sometimes mm. that's good. Sometimes you need to just invest in some personal hobbies that make you feel good. But then there comes right. a point where you just, you know, you wish like having a little bit of accountability in another way. Um, or, and or so, structure. Yeah. Structure, yeah. And so I loved, um, my summer camp job. Um, basically you, you get partnered one-on-one -on -one with a student with special needs mm. and you go to the park, you go to, uh, rec centers, you go to pools. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we went to movies and not only did I really like at the time, really like the organization and I really enjoyed the people that were there, but I have so much love for my partner. Um, I had worked with her the previous summer. She, at the time, she was uh, a 14-year-old teenager with special needs, and I loved her to death. Um, she is somebody that is so special to me. Even to this day, she's so special to me. I loved her parents, and I think that a huge, and I don't know, I, I, I get a little choked up talking about it. And, and I hope that if, if this family ever hears it, it would help, but that girl and her parents and the relationship I had with them was what got me through my depression. Awesome. Um, I loved this person so much. I loved the relationship we had. I loved the way that through our relationship, we connected with other people. Um, and yeah, yeah I think being and, and able caring to, for somebody else. Yeah. Caring yeah for somebody I, I else think, can, uh, uh, just having that you. purpose of, of, uh, working with somebody, you know, it, mm -hmm. it made me feel that sense of fulfillment that made me realize like, here's why I want to be a teacher. Nice. And I didn't have that for those two months. So yeah. I think that really helped a lot. Now, the thing is, um, even though I don't, struggle with depression chronically, I have a lot of friends in my life that struggle way more with depression uh, mm. than anxiety. And some of them are autistic. Um, and so I think my understanding of depression and my education of it has pri primarily come from them. Right. And um, also, you know, my husband and one of my high school best friends so my high school best friend has told me she struggles with chronic depression. And mm. she says that her experience with depression, and she's a lot like me, like we're very into mindfulness and mm -hmm. yoga and we're artists and we're into nature and we're very positive, happy people. And she just said, you know, some days she, nothing's going wrong. And she just starts crying. And mm. she goes, I don't understand why I'm crying. 
but she starts crying and she just gets sucked into being sad. Yep. But she has no idea why. She has no idea what triggered it. She has no idea how to get out of it. Hmm. So that's been really hard for her. And then um, my husband has more depression tendencies. And he's the type of person where he bottles things up. Okay. Uh, I'm the type of person where like, I can't bottle things up because then my anxiety gets way worse. So then I have to uh, word vomit everything. But he's the type of person where... Uh, it's like a, it's like emotional constipation. Like he just, it's so hard for him to get it out. Yeah. And his depression uh, definitely had to do with struggles with employment. Um, he graduated during COVID and for three years, he couldn't find a job in his career yeah. field. Yeah. And he was working uh, in a retail job that management was changing and he wasn't getting, you know, he was he was getting paid. Okay. Like we were able mm -hmm. to live off of it, but you know, he wasn't getting paid super well. Right. And, uh, and you know, there were some, some issues with layoff and, and mm -hmm. workplace culture changes and he really struggled. Um, and he had a lot of anxiety about quitting his job as a way to, uh, give him more space to focus on his portfolio. He's a graphic designer, you know, focus on his portfolio, focus on applying for jobs. Right. And so that was really hard for me. Um, as somebody who, you know, is such a problem solver, I'm like, let's be solution oriented. And, right. and he just, he was just sad. He was sad. He was cynical. He didn't know how to get out of it. Um, and so, I think that it was really tough in our relationship where he didn't really understand how my anxiety operated. He didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't understand how his depression operated and it requires different types of skills. So yeah, um, he doesn't deal with clinical depression, but I think when my husband struggles with adversity, he tends to lean more towards depression than he does with anxiety. Yeah. So that kind of gives you a different perspective, you being um, a person on the spectrum, he being um, ADHD and both of you experiencing depression on and off um, or anxiety about the future or major transitions. Um, what was your point of view like in that and, and how to help him or understand what he was going through? Um, so I do want to clarify, my husband is neurodiverse, but he's not autistic. Right. Um, I think that... I don't want to say that this is exclusively an autistic experience, but I do think when you are an autistic person supporting a significant other, you try to do things that work for you. Of course. And it's very hard to break out of this isn't going to work for this person and I need new skills. Now, mm. I do think that's a human thing. You know, for how sure. many times have neurotypical parents been like, do this or that, but you, and then they're like, no, based on I don't our own experiences. Autism. Yeah, yeah sure. but, but I think for the autistic person in particular, like when my husband was struggling with work, um, I felt like I knew the solution and I was mm -hmm. pushing him on it, mm -hmm. you know? And so, so sometimes he would just get really sad and, uh, and he would say, you know, I don't like where my life is going. Right. And in my mind, I'm like, leave your job. Like right, what, right. you know? Course, and and one thing that we we struggled with in our communication is he didn't want to leave his job because he was concerned about money. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's going to be the consequence of our ability to live if he's not making any money? My thought is money is not as important as mental health. It is not worth the now granted, like, you know, sometimes finances are important and you don't have a choice. But but if you're really struggling, if you're you know, and I'm not going to say my husband was at a crisis point, but my attitude is if you're at a crisis level of anxiety or depression, money doesn't matter. You need help. You need to get out of the situation that is causing the stress. And so Mm -hmm. for me, I felt like I knew like, this is the solution and I am going to keep pushing him. And I would get really (laughs) impatient with him when Uh he would say, you know, like it seemed like he would be sad, but he wouldn't want to make a change. Right. And I started to realize this all sounds very familiar. Well, and I think that that's how depression works. Depression Mm -hmm. gives you the feeling like you don't have autonomy or choice to make things better. You just sort of stew in Mm -hmm, the the things that are not making you feel good. And so for me now, granted, like I am not in any way, shape or form saying that uh, how he felt was invalid. He For had sure. his own journey of mm-hmm. exploring what his solution was, yes. and he came to that solution on his own terms. Yes. But again, as and an autistic person who's very black and white, and I'm like, mm-hmm. this is what you need to do. Sure. And and I was pushing him, you need to do it now. But he oh, wasn't sure. ready for that. And the mm-hmm. other piece of it is like sometimes when somebody's depressed, they don't want to problem solve. They don't have the energy to problem solve. Or they can't they, just, they can't think of those things at in the moment, right? Exactly. They're, you know, depression has different levels to it, right? And and so f- for somebody with clarity who says, Okay, here's the exit of this room that you're in, um, in deep depression, you can't even see the walls of where this door might be, right? You are so yeah. encompassed with your own feelings and perceptions of the world that somebody saying, here's the door, you don't even know where to begin to look for it, right? It's just, yeah. it's just different levels of things. Well, and I think that like, I think that I was very hard on him mm-hmm. about like, why don't you, you know, you bottle things up. Why don't you share it? Sure. Or, sure. Uh, you know, right. or I would rub his back and I wouldn't get any sort of like, acknowledgement of thank you he would just sort of lay there and Mm -hmm. and just be sad or like i said you know i would try to i would try to problem solve and he'd just be like i'm not interested in that exactly and and that's hard for me because that's how i cope with my mental health Mm -hmm. but then it took me having experiences of depression and and since uh, i i did have another bout of depression that uh had to do with my teaching job yes and um And I started realizing like when I was that sad, uh, I didn't have energy. I felt like I couldn't talk. I felt like I couldn't move. I remember my husband would rub my shoulder and I just felt like I didn't have the wherewithal to respond. And so I think it took me experiencing it to realize, oh, this is how he feels. And now I understand how to communicate with him better. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really hard. So I do think like, you know, autistic people were really great at researching. Sure. And I think that it's important that we, that we do research for our partner and what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if we can't empathize with it, just to have solutions. And then also, you know, 
when my husband wasn't depressed and he was in a better state of mind, mm-hmm. um, it, it got easier for me to talk to him and say, okay, well, what worked and what didn't? And it was also easier for him to, in a very rational, constructive way, say, what you did didn't work for me. What you did made me feel kind of gross. And that's easier for me to take in than like when he's actually depressed and, you know, he's more emotional and he's like, just leave me alone or whatever. Um, And I've also learned, uh, like, for example, he gets really emotionally triggered when we talk about finances. So Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was a period of time where I was like, oh, we need to talk about our finances once a week. And it was like an emotional check-in or we'd talk yep. about our budget. Yep. And what I noticed is when we did that, he'd start, uh, I don't want to say spiral, but he just got really upset about yes. um, finances where he'd get really, um, I don't know, just bummed out yes. or he'd feel like he wasn't providing enough mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and he would just sort of stew yeah. And so it wasn't until we had a conversation with our financial advisor where he said, I cannot talk about our finances that often. Mm. Um, and so now we talk about it once a month. So I've kind of learned, like, if we talk about this, yes. it's going to trigger him. And so it's not to say that we can't talk about it, but like, you know, people with autism, it's like we want to bring it up all the time. We fixate on it. And sure. that's not good for somebody who is triggered by the thing that we're we're fixating on. Yeah. And knowing that is the big is a big difference. Yeah. And so um, I think one of the things that we are figuring out as a couple is how do we support each other when our our uh, natural reactions to stress and adversity are so opposite of each other? And so we've been together for six years. We still don't have it figured out. Um, we're actually approaching our one-year anniversary of being married, and and we're still growing and learning. Absolutely. Um, and and I mean, you know, you've been married a lot longer than me. I, mm-hmm. I feel like you never a, have it totally figured out. It's a journey. It's a journey, and the best thing you could do is just support each other, right? Unconditionally support each other. That is the best thing you can do. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, you know, it's really hard to support somebody's mental health needs when uh, one person's needs is very opposite of another person's needs. Like, yes. I've realized when somebody wants to vent, they don't want to problem solve. They don't want to be solution oriented. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, I vent because I'm seeking a solution. I'm expressing the problem and I'm like, tell me what I need to do. Yes. And uh, and that's hard because sometimes I'll ask that of people who have no idea what the solution is. Right. And so that's hard. And and again, you know, there's a learning curve of how do I process my struggles with him? How does he process his struggles with me? If he wants to bottle things up, that he has autonomy to do that when he's ready to open up. I realize that he's at a breaking point or it's really hard for him or that's what he needs. And I drop everything and I listen to him. Uh, Now with me, I talk his ear off for an hour and sometimes he gets burned out because I just, you know, I perseverate. And so um, he's getting better with boundaries where he'll say, I can only listen to you for an hour and then we're done. 
And so that makes me a little more strategic about how I express my problem, how we discuss solutions. And as I said before, we're also getting better about how I redirect out of that perseveration so that I can be either more capable of solving my own problem or being okay with the ambiguity that maybe a solution is not something that's viable at the moment. Right. Because it's, um, we're all on our own journey as far as getting out of depression, right? There's, yeah. There's things that our um, loved ones and professionals can help us with, but um, we it's definitely your own journey. And you have to, you know, you're, hopefully you get the tools to help you, right? Climb your way out of this, of this pit that we, we create for ourselves. Um, but being told what the solution is rarely works, right? We have to find that solution or, or you know, come to understand that on our own in our own timeline. Yeah. And so another thing that's kind of funny is like my husband loves dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, we are definitely planning on getting a dog in the near future. But because of our mental health uh, tendencies, he wants a dog that has a certain temperament that doesn't mm -hmm. work for me. And then I want a dog that has a temperament that doesn't work for him. So for him, because he's, that's awesome. you know, he tends to lean more depression towards depression. He wants a dog that's high energy, sociable, you know, a dog that like mm -hmm. runs up to you and waits for yes. you at the door and jumps on you and licks you. Licks your that, face. Right. But that kind of dog overstimulates me, makes me feel claustrophobic yep. and anxious. Yeah. I really want a more mellow introverted dog which my husband doesn't want because he doesn't feel like that's going to make him feel invigorated. So we haven't mm. quite gotten there, but I think that's kind of funny that like yeah. how a dog helps or hinders our mental health needs. Yeah. Um, but, but then opposite dogs, that's interesting. Yeah. And so one of the things that we've talked about, you know, especially before we got married was, you know, couples therapy. And mm -hmm. our mindset with couples therapy is we try to solve it on our own. And if we're really at a place where we just can't figure it out, then we're going to go see a couples therapist. Now, mm -hmm. I do see my own therapist. Uh, I definitely see the impact of my mental health on him. And so I try to work on it separate of him and then try to learn tools that then will help our relationship. He's been more open to seeing his own therapist. Um, mm -hmm. but I think in the meantime, you know, being able to just hold space, be open-minded, listen, apply constructive feedback that goes a long way. And yeah. I, I think that it's important for couples that are neurodiverse to realize that you're not going to truly understand your partner and that's okay. And mm -hmm. you do have the social emotional capability to meet them where they're at, but it's going to take time. It's going to take a lifetime to figure it out. And the way that you figure those things out is ultimately what strengthens your relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and so I know like what's helped me because I just, I don't understand depression deeply but what I've done is I do reach out to my autistic friends. I've read books about depression and, and now I'm in a graduate counseling program. And so I think I'm at a point where like, it's okay if my husband isn't able to explain everything there is to know about depression. I have so many other resources. Um, I also feel like even though I don't, it's hard to go through depression. It's, it's really hard to be sad and low energy 
However, I think for me as a counselor and as somebody who loves my husband dearly and my friends, I use those experiences as valuable teaching tools um, so that I know how to help others. And, and I'm able to go, okay, I have a little taste of that experience. So what worked for me and what can sure. this person teach me that will give me better tools to help other people? So yeah. um, that's the way I navigate depression. So switching gears a bit, um, does your son, Josh, or even your, your other older child, uh, uh, Brendan, do either of them have experience with depression? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, and it has to do with that uh, major life transitions, I'm sure, because we're all trying to experience or have experienced perhaps the uh, transition from um, childhood to adulthood, from dependency to independent, being independent, from being um, a student to having a career, right? Those are huge, huge life milestones. And I think both of my children are kind of struggling with, okay, what do I want to do? And how am I going to get there? And what is that going to look like? And how much is it going to cost? And, you know, all of these, all these questions that they don't have answers to can lead to, you know, well, um, being stuck, right? I'm overthinking and just being stuck in that moment. And then you don't see progress. And then it's a, a self-perpetuating thing. And that, you know, builds on depression and, and all of those, all of those kinds of moments, right? So, um, you know, the, the, the big transition from, you know, childhood to adulthood and all the things that um, are wrapped around that can definitely lead to moments of depression for sure. What, how did you support your children when they were experiencing depression, especially um, Josh with his autism? Yeah, well, both of them have uh, therapists that they go to, and they they're able to talk it through with that. And I would highly recommend that. You know, this, it's not something depression is not something that you can necessarily get out of your own, right? It's it's super super helpful to talk with somebody who is objective and rational, and can you know not a family member, <laughs> right? Sometimes, and and to have that that person saying, okay, you know, let's. This is what I'm hearing you saying, you know, and and try to give you those tools to um, walk out of that, to find that door, right, for that metaphor, or to climb that those steps to use another metaphor to get out of this pit that you've created for yourself mentally, um, is is super helpful. When do you think their depression started? Like, do you think that there was a definitive age, or do you think that there were moments? And then also, you know. Was the depression ever clinical chronic depression, or was it just sort of an in and out situational depression experience? Yeah, it's, it's mostly a, an an in and out of kind of situation, and each each kid is different. But it it's both around, um, you know, that transition right out of high school, right? So you know, are the steps clear? And at, at first, the steps were clear. Both of them went to community college, and and that step was very clear. But then after that community college, you know, um, one son went to work and the other, other son, you know, continued his, uh, college career in a different setting. Again, another transition that was Josh, you know, and then, and then he was on top of all those things, he's battling, um, expectations, right? So it's, it's his expectations. It's his perceptions of my expectations for him, you know, and that compounds things when things aren't successful, mm -hmm. right? Or, 
um, things aren't going as well as he perceives that they should be going, right, can lead into um, this this notion of, well, it's not good enough. Yeah. How how did you feel as a parent watching your children go through depressive moments? Well, it's it's tough, of course. As a parent, you want to, you know, have um, offer solutions, right? So this is this is me being the parents. Like, well, you, all you need to do is this. Why don't you do that? Right? It's not easy. It's not easy to to say that. And again, if you're in that uh, mental state, you know, the last thing that's going to work is for somebody to say, "Okay, I see what the problem is. You just need to do that." Right? Mm-hmm. It, do- it doesn't work. Right? We have to come to that. Um, solution or whatever that solution is on our own. Right? Well, and and I'll also add, not that I'm a parent, but I, I think about it from the perspective of being a teacher. I think parents, especially um, parents of neurodiverse kids, feel like they have to know everything, you know, because uh, their child is struggling in that moment and they're struggling mm-hmm. really in a in a distressing way. And the parent feels like they need to have those skills in the moment to to be able to regulate them. And if they don't, it's like, gosh, I'm a failure or there's yeah, this sure. helplessness of I don't understand what's going on. And then you do a mm-hmm. ton of research. And and I think that there just comes a point where, you know, you need to go to an expert and give yourself yes, some grace absolutely. that you don't need to solve everything for your children. Yes. Um, and I think about it, you know, from teaching like I said before, where I think that we want teachers to know everything and to be versed in ways where we can create safe spaces, but we're human. We don't have the time and energy, and it's impossible for us to know everything unless we're really invested in our education throughout the course of our career. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's why, you know, like there's a caseworker. A teacher just right. cannot solve all of those problems. And that's why we go to those experts. It really mm-hmm. takes a village. And yeah. uh, and I will also say, like, as somebody who is going into counseling, and I think about, you know, what if my child struggles with anxiety and depression? What do I do? I, I feel good that at this stage in my life, I, I have a lot of really great skills at the same time, I also realize like, it's okay if somebody else comes in and helps yeah. um, because, you know, maybe the child will resonate with that feedback better if it comes from somebody that's not their parent. Exactly. Um, and so I just say all of this just for parents to acknowledge and, uh, and give themselves a little bit of kindness that mm-hmm. you're doing everything right. And it's okay if you don't know everything. Yes, exactly. exactly. So on that note, you know, I think that a, an autism diagnosis does create a lot of mental health stress for a parent. You know, there's mm-hmm. uh, I think that there's a lot of fear and grieving about what does it mean to have a child with autism and and sure. uh, what does this look like for my quality of life? And then, uh, you know, and I think parents cope with that by, you know, getting latched onto those milestones and like, oh, we're making progress. and I think it's very similar to like if you have a chronic illness and it's like, all right, let's make steps to make this better. But sometimes it doesn't get better right. um, in, in the perception of the parent's mind. And so and there's, yeah, and there's going to be up and downs, right? Ups yeah, and downs. There's going to yeah. be, you know, successes. And then there's going to be times where you feel like, you know, there's retrograde, right? 
Yeah. Um, and so you just need to understand that, you know, the journey to um, having positive mental health it can be a long one and it's going to have ups and downs. Right. So I guess what I'm wondering is if there is a parent who is experiencing depression as a result of their child's autism diagnosis or autistic struggles, what advice do you have for them from based on your experience? Well, I mean, it, try to get informed, be informed about um, your child. Um, but also, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with you having your own therapies, right? Having somebody that you can talk to. Because as you said, we don't have all the answers. We, we think we do. And it's like, my child just doesn't listen to me. What's going on? You know, and, and having, having somebody else to talk that through with and having that person saying, this is what I'm hearing you're saying, and then posing questions back to us gets us to think outside of, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. Um, okay. You know, it, it's, it's just another way for us to be better parents because in that role, we want to be supportive. We want to help our, our kids, um, but we don't have all the solutions and we need to be less of telling them you should to more of, I hear you. Mm-hmm. I'm there for you. Um, I, you know, what, what supports can I give you? You know, those kinds of things. And it's, it shifts the parenting mode from, you know, early on in their childhood experiences where you are the protector, you have all the answers. They come to you for, you know, the sage advice. And sometimes they listen to you. <laughs> and then it, but you're giving that up. You're giving that role up to more of a, a friend, um, a listener, um, a guide, a support system. And that's a, that's a different role a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think a big, a big part of a parent's mental health, I think it has to do with implicit bias and there's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with having that. Um, but it's that conditioning of what it means to live a good quality of life from a neurotypical perspective. And I think Mm. that it's so important for parents of autistic adults and autistic adults themselves, as well as the, you know, organizations like the Autism Self-Advocacy Network to share success stories and mm-hmm. to really share the spectrum of what it means to have a good quality of life as a neurodiverse person. Yeah. And I think that when parents don't have access to that, then they they start having those uh, oh, maladaptive sure. schemas and those uh, negative coping thoughts or whatever oh, we absolutely, called it. Um, and so I think like a, a big part of parents' mental health is is getting an education about autism and not getting it from the bias of a medical professional. To take time to talk to other autistic adults, um, mm-hmm. to talk to other parents, and not yes. just parents that are like your age with a child that just got diagnosed, because you got, you're all living in fear. Go right. to parents who are veterans of working with people with autism. And in fact, I would also recommend seek out parents who work in education. Like I've met people who are parents of a child with autism that are paras. Um, mm. You know, I think those are the people you that are so great to talk to because they really see the humanity of yeah. somebody living with autism, uh, neurodiversity, special needs, all, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Now, when I think about like, when I think about the foundation of my future private practice, my desire is to support not only autistic adults, but I really want to support parents um, Mm -hmm. because I do think the way that 
that parents support their mental health has a huge impact on, you know, the way a, a, a child with autism's mental health is. And one of the things I picture is a parent coming in and being like, oh, my child struggles with this. And what do you think? And my goal is I'm here to serve you. I'm not yeah. here. I'm I'm happy to give feedback on your child, but but giving you feedback on your child is not helping you tap into your parasympathetic nervous system to be able to regulate, to be able to calm down, to be able to, you know, process and digest those, those bottled up feelings of anxiety and depression. And, and I do think that getting attached to those milestones and like, all right, we're going to therapy and we're working on this. Right. I think it's, uh, I think for better or worse, in some ways, it's a coping mechanism to, to not really surrender to how you're feeling and Mm -hmm. really dig deep into that. And, and I think some parents don't want to face that because they think, well, if I'm depressed or anxious about my child's autism, that it means I don't like my child. Um, right. Or I failed some way as a parent. Exactly. Right? Or I can't, I can't solve my child's problem and I want to do that and I can't. Yes. And I think that's why, to what you said, it's so important for parents to get their own mental health support. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, autism's hard. It's hard on the child, it's hard on the parent. Yes. And uh we we don't become resilient as parents by just toughing it out. We we need to heal ourselves, we need rest, we need a break, we need a staycation. Um, and so I think being able to process and there's a whole debate in the autism community about do you grieve your child's autism diagnosis? And and I think some autistic adults get really upset about, you know, that's really stigmatizing. And I do agree with that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if crying and, uh, and I don't know, having a panic attack or, you know, being sure. able to authentically express your emotions about, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have yeah. no idea what my child's going to be. You're not grieving your child. You're mm-hmm. grieving the neurotypical fantasy of what it, yes. of the neuro, not the fantasy, the neurotypical structured predictability of parenting a child with a, a, a normal child, if you will. Right. When so you're you, giving, yeah, you're giving up you, the uh, idea. Hang on, you're giving yeah, up yeah. the idea that, um, and, and the, I like the word fantasy, the, the, you know, when you have a child, um, you you think oh you know you have the world figured out you you my child is going to be this and you're going to be that sometimes right um, you're going and you have all these expectations and it's going to be wonderful and they're going to be doctor lawyer I'm exaggerating a little bit to make a point but when you find that there's this diagnosis um, of a neurodiversity situation then it's like oh that all those thoughts and things come crashing down. Right. And then right. there, there's that grieving process. It's like, oh, and then a readjustment of expectations. Right. And OK, what does that mean now? Yes. I the way that I look at it is you're grieving the conditioning that you, and, and not that it's toxic, but you have a certain upbringing. You have a certain level of conditioning about what it means to be a parent, what it what kind of child you want based on generational expectations, based on family culture based on, uh, you know, our society or even, um, cultural standards based on ethnicity. And I think that it does take a toll on a parent. 
-hmm. But I think that when you grieve it, when you come to accept that that's not the reality of your family, your parenting journey with your child, it allows you to step into a more mindful place of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's it's Mm -hmm. about, you know, like Mm -hmm. you said, it's about letting go of, well, this is the way I want to parent. Or these are the projections I want on my child to fulfill my own lack of fulfillment or whatever. Um, Then you are able to just accept the present moment, accept your child for where they are, accept the unknown. I don't Mm. know what's going to happen next. Exactly. Exactly. But I'm going to find out. And and the thing is, if it is a process of of one step forward, two steps back, guess what? You're not alone. There are Mm -hmm. other parents who feel that way. As an autistic person, you know, sometimes I feel very alone in my struggles and to be able to meet other autistic people and realize, wow, like I really am not alone in this, that can help. So I think it's about recalibrating that that your neurotypical parenting community is not your reality, but Mm -hmm. then you can find people who have the common reality you have. And then all of a sudden there's more clarity and perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, that that's a very, very important part of a parent's mental health yes. journey in this case. Yes. And then, and then, you know, finding those communities of people who have autistic children and having, you know, discussions with those, with those parents and their struggles can also help. Yeah. Them. Well, and then going back to like some things you've shared in our past episodes, you know, you would say like, sometimes you have a bad day. And then mm-hmm. Josh is having a bad day. And then oh, all of a sudden you, you get upset. And, and so mm-hmm. there were moments when you realized the way that you could find a solution is when you changed instead of the child. Mm-hmm. Now, the oh, thing definitely. is, like, we, I think parents put so much emphasis on, well, the child needs to change. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, a certain level of mindful self-awareness and growth mindset for the parent yes. can also help. Absolutely. Um, because uh, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's triggering. Yes, you're going to have bad days and it's okay to have bad days. Mm-hmm. It's also about how do I need to change and grow to rise to the needs and be, and be more flexible. And, yeah. and I think that that's true for everything. You know, we, we interact with people who are challenging in our lives and we don't have any control to change them. The only thing we can control is ourselves. It is exhausting to, you know, I think parents feel that burnout of always trying to be the one to change and shift as much as a child with autism does. But I think parents who struggle with depression and anxiety who are not willing to have a growth mindset about themselves that are not mindful of the ways they need to heal maybe their own trauma or their own emotional issues separate of Mm -hmm. the child and their parenting relationship. Um, If you don't have that open-mindedness, and willingness to show up and heal, it's just going to make the anxiety and depression worse raising a child with autism. Right. Do you have anything else to add on that topic before we move on? No, no. I think, you know, like I said, licensed therapy, um, and then, you know, seeking out other people who have, have, have children that are on the spectrum, right? Yeah. Is a big help. Yeah, definitely. All right. So Dubin also offers tips on managing depression based on mindfulness, exercise, and spirituality. We don't have time to go into detail on what he recommends in this episode. So we advise our listeners to buy the book if they want to explore options for depression treatment. Now, most websites recommend that a person with autism treat depression by, you know, seeing a counselor, 
ideally one that specializes in autism. Um, you can also do cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness therapy, art or music therapy. There's also interoception therapy. So that's the ability to connect body senses with emotions, craniosacral or acupuncture, yoga therapy, and emotional freedom tapping. Now, these are general recommendations and, yes. uh, you know, it, it does not universally apply to all people with autism. Now, I do think therapy is a good idea always. Um, but yeah, the, the certain type of therapy is subjective. Yes. Um, I also would recommend that, you know, look into taking medication. In our last episode, um, I talked about how I went on medication to treat my anxiety. And I grew up in a holistic homeopathic upbringing. And so it was a really big deal for me to even consider medication. And it was honestly a last resort choice because all the homeopathic approaches weren't working. But, right. you know, then the reverse can be said, you know, some people rely on Western medicine and they're over medicated and they don't like that. So then they consider a more alternative medicine approach. So it's mm -hmm. really subjective. And then there are people who have, you know, treatment resistant depression and medication is tough. But I yeah. do think medication can be a really viable option. I will say medication has made a very positive impact on my life. Um, I feel like I've been able to thrive a lot better since taking medication. Mm -hmm. um, exercise is so important. Um, I've read a lot of books that just talk about the importance of being outside, sitting in yeah. nature, you know, laying down outside, reading a book. Um, I think even when the weather's not great, go outside. Um, I used to treat exercise as a way to solve my mental health issues. And that was, for me, that wasn't a healthy, uh, way to use exercise, but, but I think, you know, using exercise as a hobby can help. Um, I think yoga can be really great for, you know, developing more self-compassion. It helps with developing a meditation practice. Um, you know, it can be light, it can be heavy. I know some people really like using exercise as a goal. So if you have the structure of a goal, it sort of helps you to wake up in the morning. Or let's say you have a, a pet, a dog, that dog right. needs to go it exercise. Needs to be walked, yeah. You know? yep. it, it's just the, I think that uh, being sedentary doesn't help your mental health. No, and definitely. so uh, I look at it as the importance of movement. Uh, you know, you're not going to feel good if your body's all tight and mm -hmm. sore from just like laying in one spot and or right. sitting down and not engaging. So I do think, you know, look at it as I just need to move, um, yes. not like, oh, I need to lose weight. Oh, I need you know, I'm going to feel so much better. Just move, you know, and it doesn't have to be calorie burning movement. Just right. move. Yeah. Um, going on a sensory diet can help, you know, sometimes depression occurs because we're just constantly getting overstimulated. So understanding what overstimulates you and what soothes you can really help with, uh, managing your mental health. And then the last thing, uh, that can be helpful is alternative augmented communication services. So a person with autism that struggles with communication and expression when depressed can consider using a tablet with phrases and pictures to help with crisis mm -hmm. communication. That's that's very similar to standard communication for a person with nonverbal autism. Yeah. Additionally, Dubin says that pursuing or indulging in a special interest can be very uplifting for a person with autism. 
giving them feelings of hope, excitement, and empowerment. I've read a lot of commentary from people with autism that uh, if they experience shame about their special interests because it's very childish, it's yeah. not age appropriate, it's weird, um, yeah. that that can create masking and like, oh, I should yes, grow out sure. of this. But then yeah. it creates a lot of depression because you don't feel like you're you're your authentic self. But so many yeah, people yeah. with autism have said that indulging in their special interest, it gave them a sense of meaning. It, it gave them a light at the end of the tunnel. It yeah. helped them feel connected in a community. And mm -hmm. so regardless of whether or not what you love is age appropriate, it doesn't matter as long as it makes you happy and it gets out, gets you out of that tough time. Oh, absolutely. You absolutely. know, it's so important. And the other, the other thing about the, the whole conception of age appropriateness, if you go on YouTube, like take Pokemon as an example. Um, you know, I remember Pokemon came out when I was six and everybody was into it. And then about like middle school, like people started getting out of it. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, well, you know, if other people are getting out of it, then I should get out of it. Sure. But today, I mean, Pokemon has so many adult fans. Mm. Um, and I think that when you see that there are other adults your age celebrating that that uh, show from your yes. childhood, talking yes. about it all the time, it yeah. gets you invigorated. Yeah, that's it fun because you, you like, found yeah, your own fun. little community. Yeah, totally. And I and I do think you know, social media and YouTube really helps with that. And when I was a kid, I, I didn't have access to that. So it really made me feel like if people are outgrowing it, then I don't have connections with people. Um, but that's why it's so great to find those online resources where you can celebrate that one thing that, that yeah. you all love. Yes, exactly. um, so again, you know, seeking support for depression is very personal and subjective. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk now about depression as it relates to an autistic person in the workplace. So Nicole, you mentioned that you didn't struggle with depression as much in the workplace other than the transition into your first teaching job. So what advice do you have for autistic adults that could experience depression as a working professional? So as someone whose husband and friends with autism experienced a lot of adversity and depressive episodes trying to find a job, these are the things that I think are helpful. So the first thing is find a positive network of familial and therapeutic support. Depression is made worse when somebody is constantly nagging you to find work, which I was guilty of with my husband and I've learned from it. Um, and also like, you know, from a parenting perspective, I, I do think parents feel like if they nag and they're constantly on top of their child, like they'll see the light, but it ultimately makes them annoyed. And, and I'm sure you and I agree that as teachers, we sh that doesn't help anything. Right. Um, and so the shame of being unemployed or not working a career job can be made worse by parents that have perfectionist standards or mm -hmm. like, you know, oh, God, you're 27 and you're unemployed and you're living at home playing video games. What's wrong with yeah. you? Well, you should be working that, by now. That's that milestone stress. They're going to sure. get there. But like, it's so much harder than or the back, average yeah. person. So so I or think back that, in my day, I was working when you were, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, so those and, kinds that, of and that's the other thing, like, you know. What, in 2009, when when people graduated and, and the recession hit and, you know, I noticed that there mm. was this shift where parents initially were like, you know, oh, you well, you got to get out and you got to work. But then, yes, people There's just nothing out there. Yeah. And so 
So there had to be a change in parental perception of acceptance mm -hmm. that, you know, my mm -hmm. child has to live with me because of the recession. And then today, you know, with inflation, um, there are a lot of people who just cannot move out of the house because right. their first job doesn't make enough money. And I, mm -hmm. you and I agree, we, we grew up in uh, or lived in the greater Denver area. It's really expensive. Super expensive. Um, and so I think parents feel like they need to let their their children live with them so that they can, you know, build up their savings. Um, yes. My husband has a friend who lived with his parents so he could pay off his debt. And so mm. I, I think that uh, that again, we talked about like if you have these rigid expectations of what you think is familiar, it's not going to help your relationship with your child. And at the end of the day, it just comes down to baby steps. Yeah. And and again, I, I, I just think like parents are not doing any of their kids, whether it's neurotypical or autistic, favors by nagging them. Sure. Um, it just makes it worse. Um, yeah. So and and again, I, I mean, when I was going through my struggles, like my parents thought that I was over my autistic struggles. So I remember when I was struggling with my transition and employment um, and I knew that I was having transition stress and my dad's like, well, maybe it's just a self-confidence issue. And I'm mm. like, no, yeah. I have a very good sense of self. I love myself. I'm confident mm. in myself, but my level of confidence in myself is not impacting my anxiety about the transition. And so right. I think that misunderstanding of what an autistic person struggles with in the workplace. Uh, I think that that's so important for parents to get on board with because yeah. just because you do go through all that therapy and things do make progress, those huge life transitions, the mild parents don't realize that when you hit a milestone, a milestone essentially means a huge transition for a person with autism. And right. that huge transition comes with struggles. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so for example, like I'm 32, everyone's like, when are you going to have kids? Well, oh, okay. Yeah, there you, you go. You know, it's like, okay, well I do plan on having kids. So if I ideally reach this milestone by the, before I hit my mid thirties, oh, right. cool. Nicole reached it. But having a child is hard. Yes. And that I, I, I do not deny that I'm going to struggle. Sure. It's going to be hard. And if mm. that child is neurodiverse or has some diagnosis that I don't understand, it's going to sure. be even harder. Yes. And then it's like, whoa, well, I didn't expect you struggled because why, why would you? You've got all this support. But again, it's like, oh, OK, well, you know, the child goes through all the autism therapy to make it into mainstream school. Well, congratulations. You, you succeeded in that. But mm -hmm. it doesn't change the fact that that transition into elementary school is so freaking hard for the kid. Right. So I think it's really important for parents to understand that with that expectation of milestones comes a lot of stress and transition for the for the person with autism going through it. And yes. so at the end of the day, are the milestones more important or is the mental health more important? Sure. sure. So the way that I look at it is they're going to get there. Um but it's going to take time. Uh, I'll give an example really quick. Uh, I have a, a friend of mine who is in his late 20s, and he lives with his parents in an apartment in Denver. And mm -hmm. I've asked him, you know, what are your thoughts about moving out on your own? 
I do think he he has some nervousness about it. But then there's also a practical component. Um, he realizes that he doesn't make enough money in his job to move out on his own. Mm. He also realizes that uh, his mom doesn't make enough money to co-pay an apartment. And considering that he does have a lot of mental health struggles, you know, he doesn't want his mom to constantly drive and check on him. So he right. goes, it makes sense to me. And, and it's a win-win for myself and my mom from a financial perspective and emotional perspective that we live together. Mm. And the way that I look at it is, as long as there is an agreement between the parent and the child that that's the best outcome, who mm. cares? Who cares if he's 27 and he's living with his parents? If right. they feel like that's that's the right choice to make in that present moment and everybody's able to function in the best way they possibly can because of it. And, you know, also it's like right now, my friend's priority is work experience. It's not really money. He is yeah. making money. He's not making enough to be financially independent, but that's not the priority of his journey right now. Mm. And so I think that as long as there's a, a healthy agreement between parent and child about what it means to be an independent adult, that's ultimately how you get through it. If the yeah. parent and the child have incongruent beliefs, then that's what's going to cause the nagging and the conflict. So I mm -hmm. think it's important to talk about it. And then again, get educated, stay on top of it. Just because the child is an adult doesn't mean the parent checks out about, you know, Sure. Up-to-date autism education. Yeah. Um, the other thing is connect with friends that have also experienced employment struggles rather than friends that didn't experience issues getting hired. So this was a big issue with my husband. Um, I, I think being older, uh, my employment journey went fairly smoothly. So despite all of my transition, I interviewed well. Uh, I had really good things on my resume. I had 13, I had applied to 13 jobs and I got at least three interviews with mm. different schools and I was hired. Um, yeah. you know, I, I got hired while I was student teaching. So it was a really quick experience. Whereas my husband, it took like three years yeah, for him to get his job. And, yeah, and, yeah. uh, and we were trying to problem solve, like, well, do you need more certifications? But he didn't mm -hmm. want to pay for that. He didn't want to invest in time yes. for that. So it was yes. really hard. And so for him, it was like, he had a hard time talking to me about it because I had it easier than him. I had an sure. easier time getting my career job than he did. Mm -hmm. And he had friends who worked at Lockheed Martin, mm -hmm. you know, they're making really great money, sure, they're living sure. on their own. And so my husband just felt like he was alone mm -hmm. in his struggle. But mm -hmm. We had two other friends that also had gone through struggles. In fact, we had a friend who had gotten fired and then mm. he had to figure out how am I going to get a job after having been fired? And he ultimately overcame it. Yeah. So I think that my husband had a lot of solace being able to talk to his friends that also struggled with employment and like, here's what I did and here's how I coped with it. Mm. Um, so it's that feeling of community and camaraderie that that really helps. And it yeah. and it's way more normal than I think people give credit to. Like it's fairly normal that there are people who really struggle to get a job straight out of college. Um, but we don't often see that. We just see the overachievers that just 
get into their job immediately and make good money. Right, right. Um, attend professional development workshops and conferences that specifically support autistic and neurodiverse people in the workplace. Invest in a career coach. So in March of 2023, we went to uh, the Kennedy Krieger Center's Neurodiversity in the Workplace Conference. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was a massively helpful uh, resource. We could, you know, it was a great networking yes, opportunity. Yes, absolutely. There mm-hmm. were autistic people and neurotypical people speaking on the topic of neurodiversity in the workplace. So mm-hmm. those can be really yeah. helpful for figuring out, like, what do you need to do to get work? And yeah. what kind of support do you need to get there? Great presentations for professional, lots of resources. Yeah. So also have a good structure of work-life balance when applying for jobs so that there is time for self-care. This was a really big issue with my husband um, because, and, and I think that this was an issue for me as well. When you're working full-time and then you come home and then you apply for jobs and then you're trying to figure out like, how to get time off so that you can apply for an interview. There's no downtime. There's no replenishment. There's no relaxation. Uh, Mm -hmm. People have compared applying for jobs as a part-time job in itself. And so the people who do really well in those situations set really good boundaries where they say on the weekends, I'm not applying for anything. Or Mondays are the days when I search on indeed.com and that's Mm -hmm. it. And then Tuesdays are the days that I send out my resume. And they also set boundaries for how much time they're going to put into it. It's an hour max. And then, and then I'm going to go play video games or I'm going to make dinner and that's Mm -hmm. it. Um, And I also think it's important to make sure that fixations aren't used as an escape, especially if it takes away from a self-care routine. Mm. And then the last thing to that is, you know, network with people through family, friends, and other connections that you trust will help you out. Yeah. You know, loved ones, if they see that you're struggling, they're going to do everything in their power to help you find something. Um, yeah, when sense. it comes to depression at a job, I do recommend seeking therapeutic support. There are a lot of factors related to depression in the workplace, which includes fatigue and emotional detachment, making it challenging to complete work tasks feeling alienated or even bullied at work, experiencing sensory issues at work that are out of your control, working a job that isn't as fulfilling as you'd like it to be, getting reprimanded or fired from a job, and feeling like a failure with work tasks. Uh, What's really great about Dubin's book is he shares this personal story about how he got his master's in special education. Mm -hmm. And he did his student teaching. He did fantastic going through his master's program and then the student teaching happened and it was so difficult for him. And mm-hmm. I won't go into a ton of detail on the story, but he goes into a lot of detail about what the experience was like. And it ultimately led to, you know, people at his college and people at the school he was student teaching basically telling him, this isn't going to work out for you. You know, yeah, you no. need to find a different career. And yeah. that triggered his depression. Mm hmm. And that was something that he needed to work through. But ultimately, it led him getting his PhD in uh, psychology. And so that that can be a really, really big struggle as well. Yeah. Um, a therapist can give you skills and exercises to help you deal with those struggles. Otherwise, getting support from other people at work might come down to a few things. 
which can be disclosing your autism at work to get accommodations. Sometimes you can receive accommodations for depression. Um, I have a friend who is at an Ivy League school and he's on the wait list uh, to, to get an autism diagnosis. And he, he has a lot of struggles with depression. And so I guess he said he, he was approved to get some academic accommodations for depression. Mm. I don't know what that looks like. I, I get the feeling that it's extended time because if he's really low energy, again, I think it's very similar to like, if you have a chronic illness, like if you're having a bad physical health day and you just can't do the work, sometimes you just need extended time to get through it. So I think, I think that's the accommodation he has. I'm not sure about other ones. Um, Then there's finding a mentor or work buddy to have constant social companionship and Mm -hmm. then networking with other neurodiverse people in your same field, which is tricky, but sometimes it leads to a Google search or, you know, go to those conferences, neurodiversity in the workplace conferences that can help. So again, these are general recommendations. I am not a mental health expert, nor do I have a huge understanding of depression. Um, But this is what's helped some of my friends with autism. So Brett, what do you think you could do to support a person with autism experiencing depression in the workplace if you were their mentor? Well, a couple of things. I'd be, I would like to be that person to um, be receptive to their struggles. To like, you know, you can talk to me. I'm a safe person. Um, tell me what you're going through. Help them navigate HR if that's an issue. Right? They might say, "Man, am I? Is it okay for me to ask for a mental health day? I mean, and I'm experiencing this kinds of things. And then maybe being that person to say, "Yeah, you know, that makes sense to me. You know, let me help you contact that person or you know, if they have this concern about um, the work environment, you know, maybe try these steps. This is what I would do. You know, those kinds of things offer those resources. But then again, if it's if it's it's a deep kind of situation, you know, support them in getting um, help from a licensed therapist, somebody who understands autism and can give them the resources that they need. Yeah, I think uh, the talking to HR is really important. I know, like with my mental health struggles. Um, so in teaching, what did we get? Like one PTO day a month. I can't remember. Like when you're a new teacher, you start with like maybe two, Mm -hmm. two days off and then you accrue it over time. Right. And so, you know, teachers would rarely take days off. So by the end of it, you have like this giant amount of, um, time off. But for me, I was struggling so much that uh, I was taking at least one day off a month and, and Mm -hmm. it was getting to the point where it's like, well, what if I, what do I do if I'm like really physically ill because I'm burning all of my sick leave with, for my mental health. So I do think that that's a reasonable accommodation to just get one extra mental health day because, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're having severe depression, if you're having severe anxiety, it really is like being physically ill and sometimes you just need to take that day off. So yeah. being able to advocate for that helps. Now, the other thing that I found to be really helpful is I had a conversation with a student about how do you disclose, uh, you know, that you have severe anxiety or severe depression. And that's very vulnerable, very similar to uh, vulnerability when you're disclosing like ADHD or autism. 
Yeah. And so I was doing research on like, how do you disclose this? And I realized that the process of disclosing a mental health struggle is very similar to disclosing a neurodiverse diagnosis. You're right. So I think that that under getting those tools about disclosure is really important because at the end of the day, you can't fix it. Sometimes mm -hmm. you just need to work with what is and your right. employer needs to have reasonable flexibility with that as long as you're doing the work. And I will also say like, per what Nick Dubin said, and I think based on my personal experience as an educator, sometimes the mental health struggles are an indication that that particular job or career field is not right for you. Or sometimes people take a break from work, even though they love it and they love their work environment. Um, because let's say they're caring for an elderly person or they have a child with significant health needs that they need to care for. Sometimes right. taking a break from work, now not yeah. taking a permanent break, you know, I think some right. people with autism will quit a job and then they'll be like, well, I'm never going to work a job again because I don't want to feel this way. So then they go back to living in their mom's basement and playing video right. games. That's right. certainly not what I'm trying to say. But I have taken uh, pauses in between, you know, jobs, in between, you know, school and work, I found it to be helpful. Um, you know, for example, when I when I left my teaching job in December, because my mental health was in such a bad place, I had crisis workers that said, you need to quit your job. Wow. And so it was ultimately the right decision for my mental health. And my therapist and I agreed that because I was constantly getting triggered by things at my job, it was preventing us from doing deep core work uh, mm. on my mental health. And so mm. having that time off really helped my nervous system to rest, which mm -hmm. then helped us to do deeper work that uh, ultimately healed some issues with my anxiety. Um, I took five months off. I started grad school five months later. And, and I'm not working during grad school at the moment. Right, and right. I remember my husband said, I'm very concerned that you're going to have a lot of anxiety about the transition of going back to, you know, mm -hmm. some sort of work mm -hmm. um, after you've taken this time off. And he was worried that the more time off I took, the, the mm -hmm. harder it was going to be. And that's a totally valid concern. Yeah, so the reason sense. he brought it up is because he was like, Maybe it would help if you did some sort of small retail job or you substitute Todd. And sure. and I just knew, like, I need a break. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the time May came around, I, I left my job in December. May happens. I got to the point where I felt like I knew I had enough time off and I was mm. ready to jump into grad school. And I'm at a mm -hmm. school that I'm extremely excited to be a part of. Um, and it's a school that's founded on Buddhism and mindfulness in the, yeah. uh, and contemplative education with the masters in counseling. Mm -hmm. And so I just felt ready. Uh, yeah. I had absolutely no anxiety. In fact, I was feeling like agitated about like going back to structure and, and work mm. and accountability. And so I, I guess I bring this up to say, if you need that time off to focus on your mental health, take it. I think, yeah. uh, from my experience now, granted, I, I do have a lot of financial stability from some resources from my family. However, I think that like everybody in my support system feels like 
if work is going to exacerbate my mental health, my mental health is more important than making passive income or working a side gig while I'm doing grad school. Focus on your mental health and, you know, take on as much work as you need to, you know, while you're doing grad school. And the podcast itself is already a lot of work, but yes. but it's okay to go slow. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's okay that I'm 32 and I'm not working a job during grad school. I'm yeah. grateful that I have the resources to do that. But, but yes, again, sure. it just comes down to like, if, if you're having mental health struggles in your job, sometimes it's, it's meant to guide you in the direction that you're meant to go. Mm. So it's a good way to think about it. Um, all right, let's wrap up the episode by talking about our experiences supporting autistic students that experience depression. Brett, what did you do to support an autistic or neurodiverse student dealing with depression? Well, I have to be honest to say that I was teaching a mainstream classroom, and although I had neurodiverse children in my classroom, I didn't have um, children um, on the spectrum or neurodiverse students that were like experiencing major depression. Um, I had neurotypical students that experienced major depression. Um, and so, you know, that especially bubbled up after COVID, after we came back. So COVID happened. Um, I was remote for a year. That was very hard. Um, and I couldn't help my students. I felt like I couldn't help my students online to address that situation or whatever they were in. Right. I, it was just we were all disconnected. It was a really weird space for me as a teacher. Then the year after, I'm back into the classroom, and we have all the students back, and everything's going to be great and wonderful, right? Nope. There's a lot of transition stress for kids, and so a lot of a lot of children were experiencing depression and expectations, and uh, the transition in and out of the COVID protocols, and back to mainstream, and what that meant, and expectations. So. Uh, long story short, there was a lot of um, neurotypical kids that I had to um, understand where they were, be empathetic, maybe have extra time on assignments, maybe modify work, work with their counselor. Of course, this is all through their counselor. This is not just me necessarily just doing this um, and then have a plan for them. Um, but what often happened is that um, you had this spiral. So the spiral of depression. So we have depression with whatever the causes of that depression were. Then they're not doing the work. And then because they're not doing the work, they're failing their classes. And because they're failing their classrooms, you know, that increases their depression. So, you know, a lot of times um, students wouldn't get out of this. They would have to actually take a semester off or a couple weeks off or something like that because they were just so deep into that well of depression that um, school was another stressor. And so, like you were saying, um, the parents and counselors were saying, you know, it's, it's not working. School's not working for you right now. You need to take a break, focus on your mental health, and then come back to school when you're ready. And mm -hmm. that, that, was, that was the same, same experience for multiple students, that kind of, that kind of process. I'll, I'll also add to that, you know, having talked to school counselors and some caseworkers of students that were struggling with depression, I think that a lot of these counselors would get really frustrated with teachers that just couldn't let go of, well, we can't remove this. We can't modify the homework because sure. this is what they need to do. And so here's the, here is the counselor 
working really hard to maintain the safe space, working really hard with mm-hmm, the parent to mm-hmm. get on the same page, page and say, you know, they're just going to get by. Mental health is the priority. They need breaks from the classroom. But then the teacher's not on the same page or the teacher doesn't want to be yes. on the same page. Yes. And I, I really think it's so important that everybody in a school is just on board. Now, I do understand that counselors can't disclose too much, and it's up to the student to share whatever they feel comfortable with uh, with a teacher. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes they're missing for extended periods of time because they're going to an inpatient clinic. Um, but I, I just, I think counselors are right. You know, not only does it put a burden on the student when teachers are rigid about their expectations or feel like, you know, well, in the real world, you know, I have depression and I can't take a break. Right. Um, when teachers are rigid, yeah. Yeah. When teachers are rigid, not only does it negatively impact the student, but it negatively impacts the parent and the counselor who are doing above and beyond to advocate mm-hmm. for that person. Right. Um, and so I, I think that that comes down to, I don't know if I call it stigma around mental health, but I think I think that there's this belief in our culture that mental health is secondary to uh, productivity. And so, yeah, we're, we're in this mindset of like, well, you're not productive. We'll tough it out. Yeah. They can't always tough it out. And, and I very much look at it as if they are struggling with depression to the point where they're feeling suicidal, getting an A on some reflection essay is right. not a priority. And That's frankly, an like, response. yeah, yeah exactly. So, so I don't know. I, if, if, if you need to, if you need to make some sacrifices in order for, uh, somebody to take care of their mental health. I mean, that's so yeah. much more important. You know, if they have to do a gap year, you know, do summer courses sure. because their mental health is a struggle. No, absolutely. You know, it doesn't matter because they're not going to be able to move forward in their life. If right. the chronic anxiety and depression is holding them back. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about you, Nicole? What are your experiences with so, uh, children? Yeah, I think my depression in your classroom, my experience is really similar to yours that, um, I didn't have a lot of students with autism that struggled with depression that at least I was aware of, but I definitely had a lot of neurotypical students that struggled with depression. Um, you know, I remember during COVID, um, so I had a student who had a friend who had attempted suicide during, um, yeah, during our remote teaching Mm. and it really impacted the student. And the fact that the student was alone in his house Mm. all day while his parents were working and he's, he's ruminating on these thoughts of, um, of his friend. And I don't Mm -hmm. remember what relationship he had with his counselor, but you know, some students don't have relationships with their school counselors. And so because there's so many students on their caseload. Right. And so one day, uh, we were talking and I, I knew what was going on because he had told me about it. And so I was checking mm. in on him and I noticed he started to have his own hopelessness. And mm. I, I interpreted it as signs that he might go down the path of suicidal yeah. ideation. Right. And so, I, you know, I was really honest with him. Uh, I said, I'm going to get you help. You know, we're going to connect you with the school counselor. Um, and 
when we did go back to hybrid, um, I checked on him every day. And, and I, I think one, something that people don't understand is when you're in person and you notice like a kid is having a physical or mental health struggle, you have the ability to pull them aside, escort them to where they need to go and get help Mm -hmm. support. When you're remote, you don't have that control. You don't have those. Yeah. You don't know if that kid is going to turn their camera off. And right, you have right. no idea what they're going to do next. You don't know if they're exactly. going to cut themselves. You don't know right, if they're right. going to attempt anything. It's right. very scary um, because, you you know, you feel like as somebody who is an adult who cares for that person that you don't have any way to intervene. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so that's really scary. And I think that that's where the advantage of in-person support is. And it's just very important that... Uh, you know, within reason and with understanding of the situation, you know, communicate to parents about what's going on. Um, unless the parents are the reason that the mental health struggle is, is significant. Um, yeah. So, you know, and that's intense, you know, I think for, for a highly sensitive autistic person, I think it, it does make you good at, at sensing those subtle cues, but at the same time, it's scary to think Mm -hmm. about, you know, having to step in and, and, intervene to save a kid's life. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I did have autistic students disclose some of their mental health struggles with me, which did include depression, but I didn't feel like depression was a barrier for their success in my classroom. Um, in fact, you know, I taught high school drawing and painting. I felt like my classroom was a source of joy. It was a refuge for these students. Something very Um, different than a typical academic day. Yeah. And so I think that like it it goes back to, you know, fixations and special interests playing a role in mental health, Um, you know, and I I think that like even for students that weren't passionate about art, you know, art is very therapeutic. And so the ability to just color, listen to music, watch a TV show that's really cathartic Mm -hmm. for students that struggle with mental health stuff or are dealing with a lot of academic stress. Um, so when it came to like dealing with neurotypical students that struggled with depression, the hardest part is that the depressed students had a tendency to disengage from their schoolwork and slowly flunk the class. Right. right. And, you know, you can always talk to them, but ultimately there's just not much you can do as a teacher to help them get out of that funk. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, to give an example, I had a neurotypical student that loved art and she was very good at it. And, you know, I had her for a few semesters and she was doing really well. And then there was one semester where she just wasn't doing well. And I was surprised because she's a, you know, she's a, she's a beautiful soul. She's Mm -hmm. very talented at art. The Mm -hmm. issue was that she wasn't finishing her projects or she was turning them in late. And what I tell my students is, the people who failed my art class were the people who did not turn anything in or right. turned it in partially finished or turned it in late. And to me, that's a common sense skill. Sure. It has nothing to do with how talented you are as an artist. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. was concerned about it. Like, why is she failing a class that not only she loves, but she's talented at? Yeah. So I pulled her aside and I said, Let, let's talk about what's going on. So she told me that she was struggling with uh, chronic depression. Mm. And one of the 
triggers of her depression is that she didn't like the expectations of the art class. And it's mm. not that she didn't like me. Yes. It's just that she didn't like that she couldn't use art as a coping tool, that she didn't have the freedom to create her own illustrations. She had mm. to do a project. Uh, she had to do technical skills that were out of her comfort zone. Mm. And so she felt like the you know doing art for a class, for a grade, it felt like a chore. Yeah. And it didn't make her feel happy. It didn't feel like it gave her creative freedom. Mm. And so I said, well, first off, for how much you love art, you should not fail my class. Right. You can pass it. You know, it's okay if you don't get an A. But I was like, it's not okay for you to fail and repeat a class that you love. Right. But I also said, if you if you are making art in a way that doesn't make you feel fulfilled, then don't take an art class. It's okay. Yeah. And it was really hard for her to come to terms with that. Um, and a big part of it was that she had a lot of friends in the class. And so right. she was afraid that if she wasn't taking these advanced classes, she wouldn't have time to be with her friends. And, and in fact, uh, you know, because she was so busy with her academics and busy at home, you know, she was afraid she was going to lose that time to make art. And we also had a National uh, Art Honor Society, and she was afraid, well, can I not be part of the Honors Society if I don't do an art class? And I said, right. you are still part of the art community if you don't take an art class. It's okay. Yeah. And then she said, well, are you going to judge me for it? And I said, no. I want you to right. do art in a way that makes you happy. And if that means that our paths don't cross anymore, that's okay. Yeah. Because I want your, and I straight up told her, her mental health is significantly more important to me than whether or not she continues to take art classes. And being able to have that honest conversation and giving mm -hmm. her permission from, you know, somebody who is a professional artist to say, it's okay not to do this. It's okay to discover that you don't want this kind of relationship with your artwork. Mm -hmm. It relieved her and it made her feel capable of finishing the class out. Right. And, you know, and I communicated it with her counselor. And so we were all on the same page. And uh, yeah, I mean, if we didn't have that conversation, she would have continued to push herself through it. She wouldn't have been as successful and she would have been miserable. Yeah. And I'm a very big proponent that just because you love art, doesn't mean that art classes are always an appropriate fit. Right. Some people just want that that freedom to create and art classes I'm not going to say art classes don't give creative freedom because they do, but they also limit creative freedom as a means to teach you some skills so that you can achieve more creative freedom. But that doesn't yeah. resonate with everybody and that certainly doesn't resonate with all teenagers. So right. I understand and it's not that. necessarily, yeah, it's not necessarily known when a person signs up for an art class. Yeah. You know, another example, like you're a social studies teacher. I connect more with the topics related to social studies, A, as an adult, and B, educating myself on my own terms rather than, oh, I yeah. got to write an essay and, oh, I got to sit right. in a desk and listen to a lecture. And so yeah. it's okay. You don't mm -hmm. have to engage with the content by being in that class. Yeah. 
Um, now, another story I'll share is, uh, and this was a, a huge game changer. So in the last episode, I, I talked about um, how I was admitted into an inpatient clinic for having mm -hmm. severe anxiety. So while I was there, I met another person who uh, I found out was also an artist. And so mm -hmm. I said, let's talk about this. And so this person told me that they used art as a mental health coping tool. They experienced increased mental health distress when they weren't able to do the artwork they wanted to do in high school because they had to complete class projects. Right, right. And they also felt vulnerable um, showing their work to other students and having them critique their work. So they didn't like having their work graded as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was a really important conversation to have because I said, I, I so appreciate that you are using art as a mental health coping tool. I am in total support of that. Yeah. That is not the goal of an art class. Now, the goal of an art class is also not necessarily to cause you mental health distress. Of but, course not. Yeah. But Nobody whole, would take it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, you're good. So the point of an art class is to teach you to grow. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that growth is really vulnerable. And especially when, if you're using art as a mental health coping tool, you don't want to be critiqued as a way to get better. You don't want to be judged. Right. So that's why I say, even though you need uh, call, you know, credit to graduate and you like art, so you think, well, I'll fill my art credit. Mm -hmm. It's not always a good fit. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And, and, and I know some people where they love art, but maybe it's a better fit for them to take sculpture or, or a digital art class, because mm -hmm. it's a style of art where they're a beginner and they have no emotional attachment to mm -hmm. that style of artwork benefiting their mental health. Mm -hmm. So what I did after talking to this person who was probably in their early twenties, I went back to my students and I told them about my conversation with this person. And I said, I want to know what your relationship to art is mm. so that I can be a better coach. Because if your relationship with art is as a mental health coping tool, I'm not going to push you to be a better technical artist. Mm. I might then say, okay, well, you have this project. Let's talk about the ways you use art as a mental health coping tool and how can we integrate that into this project? Right. Um, I, I think that ultimately that helped my students feel seen and heard. And I will mm -hmm. tell you, you know, everybody comes into art with like a very, very strong emotional connection. And so a teacher can violate that. And so that's why I think it's important for students to have a voice to say, this is why I enjoy making art. This is how it serves me. And therefore, I want you as my mentor to serve me in this way. So then it allows me to better accommodate each individual student or understand what is the overall class need when I give, um, you know, in-process feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, so I am tremendously grateful for learning these things. And again, I think that it helped me to be flexible with my expectations um, rather than being the person that's like, well, 
these are the expectations you need to meet. And I don't care about your mental health. This is what you need to do. Right, right, exactly. So um, the most important thing, in my opinion, a teacher can do is help a student feel seen. This isn't mm -hmm. about being the student's therapist or making them right. feel like they have to share their experience with depression. But right. it's about holding them accountable in a way that also shows kindness towards their struggles with depression. So when I talked about uh, my student with depression that was failing, um, mm -hmm. I showed a tremendous amount of kindness for their mental health. I said, if this is how you're struggling, then maybe an art class isn't good. But in right. the present moment, you still have a, pass to cl uh, a class to pass. And I don't want you to go through the pain of having to repeat a class. Exactly. So to me, that's kind accountability. It's meeting mm -hmm. the student where they're at and making sure they make it to the other side without adding more mental health stress. Right. Um, a teacher that shows compassion towards a mental health struggle goes a huge way for a student that is learning how to navigate life with depression. And ultimately, when you have these conversations, it makes them comfortable about self-advocating. It helps mm -hmm. them to be comfortable, you know, being open to share their mental health struggles with somebody else. And they develop coping tools. And yes. I think the most important thing, like when I reflect on this conversation with my student, sometimes students get scared to have these conversations with me because yes. they have an assumption of what my expectations are. But mm -hmm. when we have these transparent conversations, when we have the vulnerable conversation of a student saying, this is how I'm struggling, for them to realize, I don't care about their grade. Right. I care about their mental health. It allows them to let go of that attachment of, mm -hmm. I got to do well, or I need to run away. They right. realize, wow, my teacher is on the same page as me. And this is no longer about me getting an A in the class. Yeah. Um, differentiate and accommodate based on depression struggles without enabling a lack of academic responsibility. I do think right. the love and logic approach is really helpful for, you know, kids who have mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, talk to the student about what feels achievable given depression struggles. Um, collaborate with counselors, social workers, and caseworkers on this. Now, sometimes you can do all this work and a kid just ends up failing. Right. That is not a reflection That's of you as a teacher. Right. I mean, it is a reflection of the student, but ultimately it's not a reflection of them not caring. Um, they really are struggling. Yes, and uh, agree. that student support team involving counselors, caseworkers, social workers, parents, they know what to do to address it. The yes. counselor and even the ad admin that supports that student, they're going to know what to do when it comes to credits. You don't need to worry about it. And, you know, right. sometimes like uh, I've had students who their wake up call about not letting their mental health impact their academics came from failing and having to repeat a class. It's mm. really painful for them. Yeah. But if that's what it takes for them to realize that depression is not an excuse to just tap out of school, so be it. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. Use neurodiverse learning principles to support students that are struggling with anxiety and depression. Um, this is another way that helps them to feel seen. Some firm accountability can help students snap out of a depressive funk if they realize their choices will result in them flunking a class. 
you know, so continue to be encouraging. This is not about being a bad cop. Right. Um, my approach as a teacher is I start out very compassionate. I, I seek to understand. I use love and logic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If I have exhausted all those resources, then my bluntness and directness starts to come out. Mm. And usually that works. Um, and I think when I get to that point and nothing changes, I make peace with myself and I say, I've done everything I could. Right. And now it's on you. Right. So when and we're it not counselors, so yeah. Oh, we're not counselors. I mean, I do think it's good to have like therapeutic communication skills, but we teachers are not responsible for solving the problem. Right. So when it comes to art, as I said before, you know, I don't think it's a good idea for people that use art as a mental health coping tool to enroll in an art class. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that they can never take an art class, but maybe if they're struggling significantly their freshman year, maybe they need to wait to take an art class in their junior year. Mm -hmm. um, or again, you know, if, if it is a coping tool, um, I don't know how you feel, Brett, as a, as a core teacher, you know, sometimes kids just need to doodle during class as a way to help them focus. And some teachers hate it and some teachers get it. I don't know I was, if you I have was thoughts fine with on it. that. Yeah, I was fine with that. I mean, you know, I mean, Josh did that all the time. I mean, he would, he would have his book. I mean, we talked about reams and reams and reams of these spiral notebooks. I have like five or six crates of spiral notebooks of just his doodling. Right. And if that helps them focus, that's great. But, you know, we talked about this in another episode. It's hard to know as a teacher, is this um, helping or is it, um, you know, trying to get out of, of thinking about the class kind of thing. Sometimes yeah. we don't know. And I think what's also hard is like, I think students really struggle with the expectations of high school when they graduate from middle school. Mm, and especially yes, when it comes to art. Yep. Now, I, I'm going to make this very clear. I have high expectations, but I am mm -hmm. not a hard ass when it comes to my grading. Mm -hmm. okay. I have told students that if you do the best you can with, you know, with the tools you have, you do not have to be a talented artist to pass my class. You just need right. to be able to do the best you can and get everything turned in on time. Mm -hmm. But yeah. sometimes that's hard for kids to achieve because, uh, you know, I will say when it comes to high school, high school art classes are very technical. And right. I think that when it comes to elementary and middle school, Art classes are more about play, exploration, sure, sure, um, sure. and it gets more serious in mm -hmm. high school. And that's, that's a really hard transition for some kids. Now, others are like, I'm ready for that. Right. Um, but there are some where they're like, when is art going to be fun? When is it going to be playful? So it right. is important for art teachers to have that balance. But I think in general, that's kind of the culture of high school. Um, mm -hmm. And so... I think that some kids, like I, I had mentioned about my one student, taking advanced classes was just not for her. And so yeah. I, I do think from like an art teacher perspective that if a kid loves art and all they want to do is find community and connection, but they don't like the projects, they don't like the high expectations, they don't like critiquing, mm -hmm. they have two choices. One, they can they can take uh, another creative class that has lower stakes, emotional stakes for them, right. or uh, they can be part of an art club. 
You know, yeah. just because you don't take an art class doesn't mean that you're completely um, separated from other students that are also into art. Yeah. And like you said, part of an art community, right, as, um, you know, joining the art club and things like that. There's other things you can do. Yeah, yeah. And I think it just comes down to, you know, having a conversation. If, and if the student is scared to have that conversation with the teacher, have it with the parent, have the parent advocate. Talk to the social worker or the counselor. Have them advocate. Yes. Talk to the caseworker. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more than happy to to meet students where they're at with their mental health, but that's not going to occur unless a conversation happens. Right, right. Because so, we can't make assumptions as teachers. Yeah, exactly. So the last thing I'll say on this topic is my previous school social worker said um, that it was really nice to have teachers like me that were sensitive to the needs of neurodiverse students. Um, low achieving neurodiverse students struggle with low self-esteem of feeling successful in school. So it goes a long way to have a teacher that just gets their neurodiversity and builds them up to feel successful, even if they don't resonate with the class topic and mental health is the same way. So, mm -hmm. you know, I had so many people in my career that were like, you know, why don't you teach in special education? You're so passionate. Right. What I learned as a general educator in the electives is that being that support person supported the caseworkers as much as it supported the students. Because yeah. when you have a caseworker who knows the student, knows their struggles, the social worker, same thing. To have a teacher that they know and trust is going to yes. welcome that student, yes. love them, understand mm -hmm. them. It, it, it gives them faith that the student's going to be okay. It gives yes. the parents faith. Um, and so I realized that I had a lot of value as a general educator who is an ally mm -hmm. to the special education and counseling mm -hmm. departments. Absolutely. Um, so I, I guess like understand that if you're neurodiverse or, you know, if, if you were diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder or clinical depression or bipolar disorder. Not only does that add value to the students that you support, it adds value to the adults that support those students. Yeah. So great summary there. All right. So before we close out this episode, I wanted to share some other books that are good resources for people with autism struggling with anxiety. Uh, there's The Guide to Good Mental Health on the Autism Spectrum by Jeanette Perkis, who also goes by Yen Perkis. Dr. Emma Goodall and Dr. Jane Nugent. There's the Healing Otherness Handbook by Stacey Reicherzer, Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price, Trauma, Stigma, and Autism by Gordon Gates, Overcoming Anxiety and Depression on the Autism Spectrum by Lee Wilkinson, Autism and Depression, Empowering Yourself, Your Mind, and Your Life by Ethan Harris, Autism and Depression, a Workbook for Adolescents and Adults by Katie Saint, and ADHD, Autism Spectrum Disorder and Depression by Duong Tran. Additionally, Nick Dubin has written three books that could also be helpful for people with autism. Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety, Asperger's Syndrome and Bullying, Autism Spectrum Disorder, Developmental Disabilities and the Criminal Justice System, and The Autism Spectrum, Sexuality and the Law. Now, for people struggling with anxiety that are autistic and transgender, 
A good book recommendation is Supporting Transgender Autistic Youth and Adults by Finn V. Gratton. And I'll also add, um, if you are part of the autistic LGBTQ plus community, I would also recommend reading Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price. He is a transgender autistic man, and he does a fantastic job talking about the mental health experiences of people with autism from a variety of identity perspectives. So that can be really helpful. And we'll put these books in the show notes too. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we have come to the end of this episode. So we have talked about common experiences people have with depression, the connections between autism and depression. We've talked about general advice on how to treat depression, um, our general personal experiences with depression and how to deal with it, and how to support depressed autistic students and neurotypical students in the classroom. Our next episode is Autism, Perfectionism, and OCD. Now, I want to clarify really quick with our next episode. It's really heavily focused more on perfectionism. We touch a little bit on, on OCD. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, so perfectionism is part of OCD, but they're not the same. And OCD Mm -hmm. has a bunch of layered aspects to it. So we do talk about it, but we're not going to go into an extensive amount of detail about OCD. We're really heavily focusing on the topic of perfectionism. All right. So follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you for turning in and we will see you next week. And until then, I'm Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas.